Say that he recited to the people that I am the Abd of Allah SWT, the servant and slave of Allah SWT. This was part of his Nubuwa. This was Allah SWT revealing to him in advance that the very first thing you have to proclaim to the people is that you are the slave because Allah SWT knew that in the future there would be this problem. On the one hand that the Jews would not accept him as the slave and the Prophet and on the other hand that the Christians would exalt him above being a slave and prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and instead deify him and view him to be the son of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then another nukta in this passage that we did yesterday, verse number 31, where Isa alayhi said, that I have been enjoined to pray salah and pay zakat as long as I remain alive. There's a detailed discussion which we will have a bit later on about Sayyidina Isa being alive still today that he was not actually killed on earth but he was raised up in a state of being alive to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is something that 99.999999% of all of the ulama of Islam have had agreement upon that is sufficient to constitute ijma'at that point zero 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 one percent one or two scholars in 1400 years had the opinion that perhaps know that he was killed on earth and here now today in Lahore, Javed Ghamdi who used to be in Lahore he has very forcefully revived this view that Sayyidina Isa was killed on earth but actually this is the position of the Qadianis they view that Sayyidina Isa was killed on earth. Why? So that the hadith in which the Prophet talks about the Messiah, they can say that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Qadian is the Messiah, as opposed to Sayyidina Isa returning as the Messiah. So here, this ayah has also been used by the ulama as proof that Sayyidina Isa is alive and will return, because he says that he has been enjoined to perform salah and pay zakah. And he never paid zakah in his entire life because he was poor. His entire life. However, when he will return back to earth, this is known as Nazul al-Masih, Nazul al-Isa, salam, then he will obviously be a ummati of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallam, and he will actually have enough money at that time that he will be able to pay zakah. Always remember that every single ayah of Quran will be practiced upon and will be manifested on earth. So there's not yet been any manifestation of this ayah, which is again Surah Maryam, Surah 19, verse 31, that Sayyidina Isa is saying that he himself has been enjoined, that he must pay zakah as long as he is alive. And again the ulama mentioned this as an ashar ma'dum tuhayya, as long as he is alive, this indicates again that he remains alive, and when he, back, when he returns back to this earth, he will inshallah pay zakah, and therefore then, Amal on this ayah will be manifested. Now beginning here on ayahs number 34 to 40. So Allah Isa, that was Isa alayhi salam, Ibn Maryam, who was the son of Maryam, 
قول الحق الذي فيه يمترون This is a statement of truth about which they, yani the Christians, are in doubt. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then clarifies مَا كَانَ لِلَّهِ أَنْ يَتَّخِذَ مِنْ وَلَدْ That it does not befit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have a son. Subhanahu, pure is he far above any such notion. إِذَا كَذَا أَمْرًا فَإِنَّمَا يَكُلُّهُ كُنْ فَيَكُونَ That when he decides anything, he simply says to it be and it comes to be. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changes tense and now addresses the people وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ رَبِّي وَرَبُّكُمْ And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is my Rabb and your Rabb. So here in your translation where it says, O Prophet, actually it's O Isa salam, say to the people, Yani Nabi Isa salam, as opposed to Sayyidina Rasulullah salam. So Sayyidina Isa salam told the people that indeed surely Allah Ta'ala is my Rabb and He is your Rabb. And therefore, because He is the Rabb, Fa'buduhu, that you should obey Allah, you should worship Allah SWT alone, Hadha Siratul Mustaqim, that this is a straight path. However, the various factions amongst the Christians disputed this matter. All of this, that Allah Ta'ala is their Rabb alone, that Allah Ta'ala is the Rabb of Isa salam, that suggests that Isa is something other than the Rabb, and that they must do ibadah of Allah Ta'ala alone. So the different factions of the Christians differed among themselves about this matter. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about these various factions. So woe is to those people, how evil is the fate of those who have refused to believe when they will have to face Yomin Azim, the great and tremendous day. Asme and here this is for those of you who study Arabic, this is an example of Ta'ajab that how acute will their hearing be? And how sharp will be their sight on that day when they will come to us. But the transgressors, the zalimun, the wrongdoers and the transgressors, they're in clear and ma- they're straying in clear and manifest error. So warn them of the day of remorse. So this is another way Allah Ta'ala describes Yom Al-Qiyamah in Quran. Yom Al-Hasra. That this is the day of remorse and regret. That this is the day when the matter will be decided. This whole matter will be settled and decided. What does it mean? This matter and affair of Sayyidina Isa not being the son of Allah and all of the different things that the Christian factions disputed about. Just to give you an idea. For example, there are some Christian denominations that view that Sayyidina Isa was born, obviously like we do, without any father. There are some Christian factions that believe that no, there was a father by the name of Joseph who was not saying Yusuf Islam, Joseph, a carpenter at that time, and he actually was the father of Isa, but still Isa Islam is the son of God. And obviously then there's greater dispute that whether he is or is not the son of God. So this matter that they are disputing between themselves amongst and because obviously there were some very small minority of early Christians who denied that Sayyidina Isa is the son of God and today their remnants are known as Unitarians in America so you have this whole vast field of debates on the nature of Christ this is how they would refer to it 
in Christian theology. So all of this will be settled by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment. And for them, in that case, once it is settled, it will be a day of hasra. They will regret and have regret and remorse over the position that they had. وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ وَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ So they were in a state of heedlessness and they had failed to believe they did not believe. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that indeed we, it is only we who shall inherit the earth and all who are upon it and it is to us alone that they will be returned. So the notion here is that it's not going to go to Sayyidina Isa or to any Nabi. Ultimate dominion and mastery lies in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never, it does not befit Allah ta'ala to take a son. What does it mean? To take a son or to implies to need a son, to benefit from that son, to be assisted by that son. So in that sense it does not befit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sha'an, his azmat, his majesty, his omnipotence. He does not need a son, he does not need a helper, he does not need an assistant. So there is no ma'na, there is no sense, it is nonsensical to suggest that Allah Ta'ala would take a son because he is that being who has no need of any such son. Then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that what I showed you, the fail that that how acute will the hearing be and how sharp will their vision be on that day, what it means is that in the day of judgment, all the truths will be revealed. On the day, many people think, oh, I wonder, I wait, and I go to Jannah, and then I will learn this and learn that. No, on the day of judgment itself, all of the truths of reality will be made manifest. And no human being, none of their upbringing, their shirk, their kufr, their confusion, their doubt, their agnosticism, their atheism, all of that will be stripped away from them any of their confusions, all of that will be stripped away. They will have completely clear hearing. And here, sama means number one hearing, but also ability to understand and conceptualize. Again, basr, they will have acute and sharp vision and sight, but it also means they will be able to 100% perceive that reality. They will be able to understand and conceive and perceive reality on that day of judgment. But at that point, it will be too late for them to accept it and acknowledge it of their own will. That will be a state of mushahada. So then Allah Ta'ala reverts, but the Zalimun in this world, they are wandering astray in clear error. They don't have that acute hearing and that sharp perception. Then Allah Subhanahu has mentioned in other places in Quran Al-Kareem that what will the disbelievers be saying? So these are few ayahs that we had done last year, surah number 6, surah an'am, verse number 27, they will say that if you could but see when they were made to stand before Jahannam, and that is coming in a moment, people will be made to stand in front of the fire of judgment, this is the expression of hasra, that woe unto us, extreme feeling of remorse and regret, Nuraddu, if only we could be returned back to the world, and then we would not falsify the ayat of our Rabb. And this is a theme that you find in many ayat that the unbelievers on the Day of Judgment will refer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as Rabbuna, as our Rabb. Because they will see that reality that Allah is Rabbun Nas. He is Rabb of all of humanity, not just Rabbul Mu'mineen. 
Minal and if we had gone back, then we would have made ourselves from amongst the believers. And then in Surah Baqarah, also something we had done last year in verse number 167, the disbelievers, what will they say? They will say that if only we had another turn in this worldly life, then we would disassociate ourselves from all of those things, all of those false gods and idols that we believe in, as they have disassociated themselves from us. But they will never be able to do so. Alright. This is a hasra. Another meaning of Yom al-Hasra is mentioned here in, in, in a hadith of Sahih Bukhari. This is narrated by Sayyid Abu Sayyid Abu Sayyid Khudriyamul Anhu. This is this hadith about death. That death will come and be Allah Subhanahu will make death come in the form of a black and white dual colored sheep or ram. Then a caller will call out that, Oh people of Jannah, and they will look carefully. Then the caller will call, do you know, do you recognize this? And they will say, yes, this is death. And then, because all of them will have died already, right? The ram is just a symbolic representation, the phenomenon of death. And they will say, yes, we recognize the phenomenon of death, because we have already died and we are in Jannah. Then the same caller will call for the people of Jahannam. And they will look and respond to his call. And he will say, do you recognize this? And they will say, yes, this is death. Again, because they have also died and gone to Jahannam, they have all witnessed and experienced and undergone the phenomenon of death. Then Allah's sponsor would decree that that animal be slaughtered. What does this mean? It means the process of death will stop. Now Allah Ta'ala is showing, oh, all of you in Jannah and all of you in Jahannam, you will be from the undying. In other words, from now on there will be eternity for you. Never shall death overcome you. You will never die. And for the people of Jannah, that will be a source of extreme happiness. And they will be joyful and elated that they will never die and Jannah will be unfading for them. But similarly for the people of Jahannam, this will be, and this is the second hadith in Tirmidhi, which adds upon this, because Sayyidina Rasulullah recited this verse when he told this incident to the Sahaba. So that's why this hadith is mentioned along with this verse. And in Tirmidhi it's mentioned that the people of Jahannam would the people of Jannah will be so happy that if it was possible to die of happiness, they would die. But obviously, they cannot die. But that's how happy they would be. And the people of Jahannam will be so sad that if it was possible to die of grief, they would die. Of the grief that they feel, but they cannot die because death has been slaughtered. Right? So this is the commentary of this day being Yom al-Hasra. Although this is specifically mentioned for the disbelievers... It's also mentioned that for the sinning mu'mineen, that day of judgment would also be Yom al-Hasra, a day of remorse and regret when they see their deeds. Even if they receive their deeds in the right hand, but they don't get the highest daraja of Jannah. It comes in hadith that Sayyidina Rasulullah said that even by saying Subhanallah once, a person gets a higher level of Jannah, so the mu'mineen will have a hasra. When they look at their book of deeds, they'll be happy that they got it in the right hand, but they will have hasra, if you will, so to speak, in all the empty spaces, in all the blanks that they left, in all the opportunities they missed out, on the mazid, fadail, in the extra acts of worship, righteous acts of piety, good deeds they could have done, they will also have a hasra. 
and not that's yawm al-hasra but when they enter into jannah the only remorse and regret and hasra that the believer will have will be exactly the same that the time in my life on earth that I didn't use in the worship and obedience and remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I didn't use in the service of the deen in his creation and therefore I would have had again higher darajat they will have a hasrat over that and that hasrat will continue with them while they throughout their eternal life in Jannah. Then the last thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said is that indeed we, we alone are the inheritors of the earth. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to say here is that what does it mean Allah is not going to inherit the earth because the earth will be folded up and tossed away and discarded when the end of time comes. The meaning of this metaphor is that whatever we own on earth is not our real ownership and possession. It's just transitory temporary ownership and possession. Real ownership and possession belongs to Allah subhanahu ta'ala. In fact, everything ultimately, penultimate, is exclusively belonging to Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So that's what Allah subhanahu ta'ala means, that it is us and us alone who will inherit the earth. means ultimate ownership of the world belongs to Allah subhanahu ta'ala alone. Now we move to the next section, which is verses 41 onwards. And here Allah subhanahu ta'ala is going to 41 to 40. 41 to 50, Allah SWT is going to mention the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, which we had done partially last year as well. But here is going to be mentioned particularly the dialogue between Sayyidina Ibrahim salam and his father. kitab, so you should mention in the book the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam. Indeed, innahu kana siddiqan nabiyya. He was siddiq and he was nabi. So here Siddiq is not referring in the case of Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam to some other category. So these words, three words are going to come in the next passages. Siddiq, Rasul and Nabi. In the Arabic language words have a lexical, linguistic, lughi mana and they also have an istilahi mana when they're used as a term. Just in terms of language, Siddiq means a person of the most upright truth. The highest level of truth. Nabi comes from the word inform, so the Nabi is that person who informs people. Rasul means messenger, and so Rasul refers to that person who delivers a message to people. So that is the simple meaning of these words. In Islamic terminology, Siddiq normally, not here in this ayah, but outside this ayah, normally the word Siddiq is used for a non-Nabi, but to denote the truest followers of the Prophets. Like Imam al-Siddiqeen, Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, and technically Nabi and Rasul, the difference between them is they both mean a prophet, but Rasul is that prophet who has been given a wahi, a kitab, a book, a scripture. Some ulama say that he was given his own scripture. Some say, or he was using the script, and that's going to come shortly, like Sayyidina Harun al-Islam, he was using the scripture of another Nabi, but he had a kitab. He had a message that he was delivering. What that means is that there's some anbiya that they had no kitab, neither was a kitab given to them, nor were they delivering a message of a kitab that was given to a nabi before them. It was simply what Allah Ta'ala would reveal on their heart. They would explain it, but it would not be scriptural. It would not be written down in the form of any particular type of text. 
So here Sayyidina Ibrahim is mentioned Siddiq in the sense that he was the of the highest level and caliber and status of truth and he is a Nabi that he was a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sayyid Qalul Abi when he told his father so the discussion he's going when he then when Sayyidina Ibrahim said to his father that oh my dear father Ya Abati that why is it that you worship that which can neither hear you nor which can see nor which can benefit you in any way alright so the father and then in order to show his father that even though I'm making a rational argument I'm not this idea didn't come to me from my uncle even though I'm making a rational argument the source of this argument is not akal. So it's very important. Even in Quran Kareem, when Allah subhanahu makes a rational argument, and when Nabi Kareem, some very occasionally in Hadith makes a rational argument, if any alim of deen today makes a rational argument, even the source of that rational argument is revelation in deen, the source of it is not akal and mahas, is not mere intellect. So this is why he continues, and he says to... Uh, his father, Ya Abati, O oh my beloved father, Inni kajaani min al-ilmi ma lam yatika that indeed has come to me such knowledge which has not been granted to you. So it's not coming to me from my uncle. This idea that these idols can't hear. Although it is a rational thing to say. You're worshipping an idol, the idol can't hear you, it can't see you, it's a piece of stone, it can't do anything for you. But the reality behind that is something that is a knowledge that was revealed to Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. And this is also something that he's also trying to invite his father to something higher. To that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to that revealed authority of revelation that has been bestowed on Sayyidina Ibrahim salam. So then he says that therefore, fattabi'ni, that you should follow me, O father. Ahdika, I will guide you, siratam suwiyya, I will guide you to a path that is straight and steadfast and straightforward. Then he makes a third attempt on his father. Ya abati, O my dear father. لا تعبد الشيطان that do not worship shaitan إن الشيطان كان للرحمن عصيا that indeed shaitan was ever disobedient again remember kana comes for istimrar was ever disobedient to al-Rahman we discussed with you as well that in this period of human religious history Allah subhanahu was often simply known as and referred to as al-Rahman then he makes a fourth attempt to his father Ya Abati, O oh my dear father, inni akhafu, that I, indeed I fear, what that a punishment will afflict you, will affect you, min rahman right? That a punishment, adabu min rahman now these are strange words for you, <laughs> these are words in Quran, right? And the fact that Allah Ta'ala has made them in Quran means this wasn't Sayyidina Ibrahim's own personal expression, Allah Subhanahu is stamping this, that yes, that even though Allah SWT is Ar-Rahman, He is all-merciful, infinitely merciful, ever-merciful, of endless mercy, still, His other attributes of justice will dictate that He will inflict punishment on the disbelievers, the idolaters, the wrongdoers, the transgressors, the unjust. And what would that punishment be? It would be exactly this, Adabu min rahman a punishment from that being of all-mercy. فَتَكُونَ لِلشَّيَاطِينَ وَلِيَّ And then you would become a friend of those shayateen that you were worshipping. Now after all of this call means the father of Ibrahim alayhi salam, Azar, he responded, أَرَاغِبٌ أَنْتَ أَنْ 
alihati have you fled and you're averse and you're spurning my gods or Ibrahim salam, ya Ibrahim the illam if you don't start doing this tantahi if you don't desist from this la arjamannaka I will do rajam on you I will stone you means I will kill you in this brutal way of having you stoned to death and then he says to his son Ibrahim salam, that if you don't so I, number one, I will kill you, and now you have to leave this uh, dawa that you were making to me. You should leave me forever. You're not my son. I disown you. I disown you. So Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, he said, Salam. Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, what did he call us? Salamun alaik. Salam unto you. This salam is not the salam that one says, like the way we say salam to one another. No. This is a different salam. This is what Allah SWT has mentioned in Quran Al-Kareem in Surah Furqan, Surah 25, verse 63. That when somebody ignorant afflicts you, وَإِبَادُ الرَّحْمَانِ الَّذِينَ يَمْشُونَ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ That the worshipful slaves of Ar-Rahman, the all-merciful Allah SWT, when they walk and tread the earth, Right? How none with humility وَإِذَا خَاطَبَهُمُ الْجَاهِلُونَ When the ignorant address them When the ignorant address them Means somebody who is jahil addresses them harshly, cynically, skeptically قَالُوا salama. They simply say salam to them and they separate part ways It's in that sense here that Sayyidina Ibrahim said salam Because his father after all the information Sayyidina Ibrahim is giving him His father responded in such a way So he's saying salam and then he says that I will salamun alaykum salam be into sa'astaghfir laka rabbi that very soon I'm going to ask my rabb for forgiveness for you. Here what it means is that can you ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive a clear and manifest and outright open unbeliever, disbeliever you can pray for their hidayah. Right? You can ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive them for and remove their jahalat, but you can't ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive them for the sin of kufr. Because that is between them and Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. That is the one thing you are not allowed to ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive someone else, is their sin of kufr and their shirk and their atheism. You can ask Allah Ta'ala to guide them, to forgive them for ignorance, to forgive them for the harsh speech. And this is what actually what Sayyidina Ibn Islam is referring to here. I will soon ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive you for not responding to me, for not listening to me, to forgive you for speaking harshly to me. Because Ibrahim Islam is worried this is my father. Not only is he now in the problem, not only was he previously in the problem of disbelieving in Allah now on top of it he is accosted and cursed a prophet of Allah. Even though I'm his son, I will kill you, I will have you stoned to death. Right? That's a sin. To talk to a prophet like that is a sin. So because he's the son, he has the right to waive that sin of the misdemeanor, the improper way his father is speaking to him. That is what is meant here. In this sense, he is going to ask uh, Allah subhanahu wa to forgive his father إِنَّهُ كَانَ بِحَفِيَّةٍ Indeed my Rabb who I'm going to ask to forgive you for those things has always been compassionate and gentle and considerate towards my du'as However I will separate myself from you and from all of those who you worship other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
وَأَدْعُ رَبِّي And then I will make dua to my Rabb. أَسَا أَلَّا أَكُونَ بِدُعَاءِ رَبِّي شَقِيَّةِ And again you had this phrase before that I am hopeful that I will not be disappointed and let down and deprived when I make this dua to my Rabb. So then he separates himself from his father and that community and everything that that community worships. Then when Sayyidina Ibrahim some departed from them and from what they worshipped instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَهَبْنَا لَهُ إِسْحَاكَ وَيَعْكُوبَ Allah Ta'ala says the gift that I did for him that he left even his own father who was an atheist and that community of atheists which was his own family and by the way he departs, he moves to Sham he was in what today they call Babylon in English he was living in Babylon he migrates there and goes to Sham or Syria so as a gift for that act is what when Allah Subhanahu made him the forefather of all of these Anbiya. This is the, one of the greatest fuzzle that Allah Ta'ala has given Sayyidina Ibrahim some unique fuzzle that he is the forefather of the most number of Anbiya from his progeny and descendants there came to be so many Anbiya and this is what is being referred to here Ishaq Islam first was the first son that was born to him Islam, the mention of Sayyidina Ismail is coming shortly and Yaqub Islam is the son of Ishaq and the grandson of Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam, and from that progeny is an entire long line of prophets and then Allah Ta'ala says and each and every single one of them we yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them a Nabi so why was Ibrahim Islam given this because he chose not to fight, argue, dispute he said salam as you're supposed to ignorant and he pulled back but he left it. He sacrificed that family and community, father and community, who were disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after trying to do da'wah on them, after reaching out to them, after trying to invite them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then he parted ways from them. So this is also a teaching in Qur'an al-Karim from us. A person may not necessarily have to take it to this level of literalism. For example, there may be people, one of us or one of our friends or someone we know who literally has an atheist as a father, it doesn't mean you have to leave them and never talk to them. Because here there was also a threat, you see. Unless your father gives you that threat that he will kill you and stone you to death. That's another reason why Sayyidina Islam left. If you don't have the threat, but then you have to leave what that family or com- the wrong things that that family and community worship. So this is very clearly mentioned here in this passage, a lesson. That if one's parents, one's family, one's community is involved in disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we cannot continue in that disobedience for the sake of parents and family and community we have to leave that disobedience notwithstanding that they are our parents, family and community and if it comes to the level that that family or community threatens us to such a level of death then we can physically leave that whole community as well but we must also make, make da'wah we must try to invite them we must try to explain to them the haq. If they still don't accept another lesson, we must make dua to them. Dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for them. That may Allah ta'ala remove their ignorance, remove their haughtiness. Right? May Allah ta'ala forgive them for the way they're mistreating me, the way they're misspeaking towards me. So all of these are lessons for us in the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. I'm getting back and finishing this passage. وَبَهَبْنَا لَهُمْ مِنْ رَحْمَتِنَا that we gave each and every one of those Nabi progeny of Sayyidina Ibrahim 
a rahma from our portion from min rahmatina, part of our rahma, our mercy. Right? And we may raised for them, or literally made for them lisana sidkin aliyah, the tongues of truthfulness. True tongues that will be raised in their recollection and their praise. This I will explain. So Sayyidina Ibrahim a few other things from previous verses that we had did, if you remember in Surah Anam, Surah number 6, verse 74, Sayyidina Ibrahim salam's father's name is mentioned. But Ibrahim abihi azar. The azar is the name of the father of Ibrahim salam. And again, he asked the same questions that why are you taking these idols as worship? Here in Surah Maryam, he's telling his father that he gives that rational argument, and then the argument fails, and he parts away as you part ways with the ignorant. Alright. Later on, in a later passage in Qur'an al-Kareem, this prayer of forgiveness is specifically mentioned, and this is in Surah number... Surah 26, verse number 86, that, O Allah, Allah, forgive my father, indeed he has ever been amongst those who has been astray. Then Allah SWT in another place in Quran, that's what we did last year in Surah number 9, verse 114, which is Surah Tawbah, explains why. وَمَا كَانَ إِسْتِغْفَارُ إِبْرَاهِيمَ لِأَبِيهِ And indeed the seeking of forgiveness by Ibrahim salam for his father in the court of Allah SWT illa was not for any reason except anamu'idatin wa'adaha that there was a promise that Ibrahim salam had made to his father. فَلَمَّا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ أَنَّهُ عَدُوُ اللَّهُ لِلَّهُ But when it became clear to Ibrahim Islam that his father is the enemy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala تَبَرَّعَ Then he disassociated himself minhu from his father. إِنَّ إِبْرَهِيمَ لَأَوَّاهٌ حَلِيمٌ That indeed Ibrahim Islam was extremely compassionate and extremely halim, extremely forbearing. So this is also this mention, right? That this istighfar was just a temporary, specific thing. But when he realized his father was an enemy, he disassociated from him entirely. Verses number 51-53, Allah SWT is going to talk about Sayyidina Musa salam and Sayyidina Harun Wadkur fil kitabi Musa. And in this book, make mention, remember, recollect, recall Sayyidina Musa, innuhu kana mukhlasan Mukhlasan, that he was surely indeed selected and chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Waqana Rasulan Nabiya and he was a Rasul and a Nabi. Right? He was given a scripture and he was also one and a prophet. Munadaina huminjani bituri, Turil Ayman, and we called him from the right side of the mountain. Now what does this mean? The ulama mentioned here that a mountain, because it's Normally its base is round, fairly round. There's no such thing as the right side of the mountain. One meaning, there are two words, two meanings you can take of this word, Amen. If you take the first meaning which is right, then it means that when Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam was such that the mountain was on his right, he was called up to the mountain. So he ascended the mountain when the mountain was to the right of his presence in the settlement. But another meaning of this is actually barakah. 
And that means that Allah SWT called him up onto the blessed part of Mount Tur, which is where then Sayyidina Musa received revelation. And that's exactly what Allah SWT mentions next. And we brought him extremely personally, directly close. This Najiyya, this is what you have in Urdu, Niji. Hmm? Niji. Niji Majlis. So this is coming from that, that we brought him intimately close to us. Right? And that is what leads to the suggestion of the second interpretation that we brought him to that special blessed side of Mount Tur where he would be brought and would be made to feel intimate close to us. And from our mercy we bestowed and gifted to him his brother Sayyidina Harun Islam as a Nabi. So this is also mentioned elsewhere in Quran al-Kareem Surah number 20 which is coming next Surah Taha Allah uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam, he makes his dua to Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala waziran min ahli Haruna akhi that oh Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala make me a wazir a naib an assistant right we wouldn't say minister but naib assistant helper from my help from my own family and who Haruna akhi make that assistant of mine Sayyidina Harun Islam, who is my brother right and then strengthen him uh in, in, strengthen me through him and let him share my task and let him share my task so this is response to this dua in another place in surah 28 verse 34 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again presents to Allah subhanahu that my brother Harun and he is even more eloquent than me in tongue an and send him with me as a support. Yusaddikuni, and he can verify and back me up, means when you send me to Fir'aun, inni akhafu ayn yukandibun, that I am afraid that those people, Fir'aun, the community will deny me. So in several different places in Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned that the places where Sayyidina Musa asked Allah ta'ala to bless him with bestowing profit on his brother, here is that I in our present surah, Surah Maryam, verse 53, where Allah Ta'ala mentions how he grants that dua. So two, three, four places where Sayyidina Musa makes the dua, makes the request. One place in Quran where Allah Ta'ala mentions that that request is granted. Then next is mention of Sayyidina Ismail And you will have a lot of his qualities mentioned in here. Ismail and mention in this book Quran al-Kareem Sayyidina Ismail al-Salam innuhu kana sadiq al-wa'di indeed he was true to his promise makana rasul al-nabiyya and he was a rasul and a nabi makana ya'mur ahlu bis-salah and he used to command his ahl and his people his family with salah with zakah and to pay the zakah makana inda rabbihi mardiyya and he was again kana is forever he was ever and always mardiyya pleasing and beloved to his rabb Okay, next is Sayyidina Idris salam. But before we do that, this meaning that Sayyidina Ismail was true to his promise, this is an ishara, that he was true to the dream of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam. So this Allah Ta'ala has mentioned in Surah 37, verse 102. We're going to do that later on, inshallah. Kala ya bunayya, inni ara fil manami. 
Sayyidina Mirza Muhammad said that, Oh my dear beloved son, I have seen a vision in my sleep. Yani I have seen a dream. What? Anni adbahuka. That I am slaughtering you. I am sacrificing you. Fandur mada tara. So literally it means see what you see. means think what you think. Consider what you will consider. All. So Sayyidina Ismail said to his father, This is the pledge. Ya abatif alma tu'mar. That, oh my beloved father, do as you have been commanded. Satajidini insha'Allah minas sabirin. That you will find me insha'Allah minas sabirin amongst the righteous ones. So this was his wa'da. This was his pledge. And it's that pledge that Allah Ta'ala is referring to here. What Arna Swata said, Kana sadiqal wa'di. That Sayyidina Ibrahim a.s. was true. Sayyidina Ismail a.s. was true to his promise. Means that that's what happened. He lied there. He didn't try to break away. He didn't scream. He didn't try to flee from that act. He was sabir. He was, and then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, obviously, as you know, the rest of the story, and we will do it. Then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala did not actually allow Sayyidina Ibrahim did not enable Sayyidina Ibrahim to take and slaughter the life of his son. Next is Idris. What kafekatabi Idrisa? Remember and mention in the scripture Sayyidina Idris alayhi salam as well. Innuhu kana siddiqan nabiyya. That again he was siddiq and he was a nabi. Warafatnahu makanan aliyya. And we raised him and elevated him to a higher rank. There is no hadith that mentions what I'm about to say. Right? And that is why the more precautionary position in the eyes of the Mufassirun is that we will not accept this. There were some reports in the Israeliyat and one particular Sahaba of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sayyidina Qab radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a person who was very well versed in Jewish and Christian scripture. He mentioned to some of the other Sahaba and Tabain that according to Jewish and Christian scripture Sayyidina Idris was lifted up to Allah ta'ala alive similar to the way that Sayyidina Isa was. And then different reports, some say that he was raised up to the heavens and then he was given death up above in the heavens. But because none of these have reached us through Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam, so the simple meaning we will just take of this verse is that Allah subhanahu wa elevated his status, that just generally speaking, elevated his rutbah and his daraja. How? Because that has come in a hadith in the Mustadrak of Hakim. Hakim, Sayyidina Rasulullah has mentioned some special things about Sayyidina Idris So first you should know that he lived 1000 years before Nuh So this is way before um, these other prophets that we are mentioning. 1000 years before Sayyidina Nuh He was the first person to study the stars, not astrology, astronomy, Navigation by the stars, the patterns of the constellations of the stars. The first person who was given ilmul falqiyat, ilmul haya and ilmul falqiyat. Second, he was the first person to write, and through him, Allah Taala instructed humanity how to write. Third, that he was the first one to wear sewn clothes, whereas previously humans were wearing animal skins. He was the first one to come up with the concept of tailoring or sewing or stitching together different skins, and. He was the first one who introduced the concept of weighing and measuring scale and wazan, weighing and measuring. And he was also 
the first two fashion weapons and use weaponry in the battle against the disbelievers who are spreading corruption on earth. So all of these things are mentioned in that hadith. So it is in that sense that we will understand this uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that he gave him and bestowed upon him a lofty rank. Then from 58 onwards, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about all of these أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ أَنْأَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ النَّبِيِّينَ مِنْ ذُرِّيَةِ آدَمْ That these are all of those anbiya, prophets and messengers whom Allah ta'ala has favored from the progeny of Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. And then secondly, وَمِمَّنْ حَمَلْنَ مَا نُوحِ and secondly, because you know after Nuhalism, all of humanity except him and his believers are wiped out. So in sense, sometimes Sayyidina Nuhalism is referred to Adam al-Thani. That just like we are all descendants of Sayyidina Adam salam, secondly, we are also all descendants of Sayyidina Nuhalism. So here, this is true for all of the Anbiya except for Idris salam. He is just from the Bani Adam, not from Bani Nuh. وَمِن ذُرِّيَةِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْرَائِيلَ and also from the progeny of Sayyidina Ibrahim and Sayyidina Israel. Again, we explained to that as another name for Sayyidina Yaqub. So, Bani Israel are actually Bani Yaqub. And these are from those people who we sent our Hidayah, and we specially selected them. Specially selected them. And what happens to those people? إِذَا تُطْلَ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتٌ Rahman, And when the verses of Ar-Rahman are recited to them, then they fall down in the weep in sajda. Alright? So there I did not recite the Arabic, so you don't have to uh, do that. But they fall down in prostration, in sajda, weeping. Right? So this also shows you that this was the effect when one hears the recited revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is why actually the Mufassirun and ulama mentioned the adab in any ayat of sajda is that you should really at least if nothing else try to learn the meaning of those ayat because the meaning of them are so powerful it's not just because they have the words sajda in them but there's a meaning in them which is supposed to emotionally overwhelm you so much that you just that's the effect it's supposed to have on you. That uncontrollably, you're overwhelmed and overpowered emotionally, spiritually by the meanings of that ayah, that you feel the immediate need to fall into sajda and prostrate to glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And here, you know, if, if we don't yet feel that way, that we weep when we hear the recited verses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, at least, as they say, you should do naqal. If we cannot really be a person of feeling, we should at least act and emulate the mannerisms of those people who have those feelings. Alright. However, these all of these great anbiya, and now this is setting up the stage for Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam, actually first for Sayyidina Isa and then Sayyidina Rasulullah and after Sayyidina Ibrahim Musa and all these anbiya that were mentioned here, what happened? So they were succeeded. What happened that after فَخَلَفَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ That succeeded after them خَلْفٌ أَضَاءُ الصَّلَاةِ That people who were so... They were succeeded by such evil successors They were people who أَضَاءُ الصَّلَاةَ Who destroyed Salah وَاتَّبُوا الشَّهَوَاتِ And they followed their passions and desires فَسَوْفَ يَلْقَوْنَ غَيَّا And soon they will meet devastation They will fall into devastation and despair so what is the first attribute mentioned here? What's the first thing that is being called as evil? Leaving Salah? 
leaving salah. So it means that if a person says that, no, I believe, but I don't pray, may, right? This is a problem. This is viewed as an evil. This is the beginning of the evil. This is the beginning of how evil enters a person, that they leave the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's the first thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning over here. That's why Allah ta'ala says in Quran, they are forgetful. They are lazy. Right? So these are those people. Why? Because they started as Muslim, people who prayed regularly. Then all of a sudden they started, maybe not all of a sudden, but gradually they became lazy and neglectful, slack in their prayers. So you start as Muslim, you move to becoming, having sahab, becoming lazy, and then the end step is this, outright destroying salah. So this is viewed as a path of evil, right? And just like in this world, there is no good deed that can offset a crime. If you are found guilty of stealing in court, you cannot present the rest of your good deeds. That no, I'm a good person and this, 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 this other way, therefore overlook my theft. The judge will say no. That this is an evil, and yes, it's a good thing that you are not 100% evil, that you have other good attributes, but we cannot use that to overlook your act of theft. Or if somebody commits a murder, they cannot present themselves in the court in front of the judge, that no, but I'm a good person, I did this, I gave charity, I'm a good, I have good other, I have good akhlaq. So that none of that, even all of that, will never be used by us to overlook your act of murder. So similarly like that, the person who neglects salah, or outright literally destroys, mean they leave salah entirely, the rest of their good deeds will not be able to offset that act of leaving salah. The rest of their good deeds will not be something that will move Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's judgment to overlook their leaving salah. And so this is why the very first thing mentioned, after mentioning all of the anbiya and all of them being Nabi and Rusul and their information and books, how did the path of evil start? By the leaving of salah. So this is very important in ayat and Quran for those of us who are still struggling with our salah, who may know people who have abandoned salah, and who may know people who have abandoned salah entirely, thinking it not to be an evil, that no, this is actually the beginning of evil and abomination. But then Allah SWT makes the way out that we should think for ourselves and share with others, just like we think for ourselves and share with others the admonitions of Allah Ta'ala Quran, we should share with them the Invitations of Allah Ta'ala Quran, illa mantaba, except that person who makes tawbah, means that again they start praying, they resume their salah. If they make that tawbah, then their neglect of salah will not lead them to evil and abomination. Ba'amana, so they make tawbah, they renew their iman, wa'amila saliha, and then they do righteous actions, acts of worship and righteous deeds. And these people, even if they had been on the path of evil, if after, while being on that path of evil, they were able to break away Tawbah, Iman and Amal. Tawbah, Iman and Amal, then even they will enter into Jannah. So this is the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they will not be wronged in any way whatsoever. And here it means that they will not be punished for any of the things they did before that Tawbah. Allahu Akbar. Right? So this shows us the path Tawbah, Tajdeed Iman, and Amal. This is why you will see also in our line, our Mashaikh of Tasawwuf, when a person is struggling in their deen, they invite them to these three things. Tawbah, Tajdeed Iman, and Amal. And sometimes they recite what we call Kalimat of Tawbah, Kalimat of Iman. And then they give them some Amal to do. 
they tell the mamulat. So this is the same pattern, exactly the same pattern that Allah Ta'ala has prescribed for a person to change their life, for a person to save themselves, to attain salvation. And Allah Ta'ala goes on now to describe Jannat Adnan Lati Wa'adun Rahmanu Ibadahu Mil Ghayb. These are those eternal, unending, limitless gardens of Jannah that Ar Rahman, the All Merciful Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, has promised His ibad, His servants and slaves, Mil Ghayb in the unseen. And indeed, Innahu Kana Wa'adhu Ma'tiya. Indeed, His promise will always, certainly, surely come to pass. And there, La Yasmuna Fiha Lagwan. They will not hear any love, any futile, vain, useless speech or sound in that Jannah. Illa Salama. In fact, they will have only and only Salam and peace and tranquility there. Wallahum Rizkuhum Fiha, Bukratum Wa Ashiya. And they will be given risk in Jannah morning and evening. Some have taken this, Mufasrun have taken this to mean that. The people of Jannah will eat twice a day. People of Jannah will eat twice a day. Subhasham ka khana milagunka. Right? So that in this world also, it was also the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah in this world that he ate twice a day. This three meals a day, this is a concept that began when in the luxurious elites of the West in the Industrial Revolution. Otherwise, simple Western history uh, the, in Western history, the simple peasant, labor, pre-industrial people also ate twice a day, right? That this is that Jannah, that our Allah Ta'ala saying, our Ibad will inherit, but or we bequeath to them that they shall inherit it, but which ones? Mankana taqiyya, those Ibad who also have taqwa. So you need ibadah plus taqwa. problem a lot of us have is those of us who even have ibadah, we don't have the taqwa. So we pray namaz but we don't stay away from sin. We pray salah but we don't stop disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We pray salah, we can't control our gaze. We pray salah, we don't have the proper adam and akhlaq. We sin with the tongue, we sin with our behavior. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making clear that ibadah and taqwa, abstinence from sin, abstinence from disobedience, Abstinence from profanity, abstinence from vulgarity, all of these things are what is meant by taqwa. Right. Oh yes, so the first evil, the first evil that is mentioned is that they neglect their prayers. The second thing that was mentioned as an evil was what is that they follow the shahwat. So this is the second thing that happens to a person. Second way a person leaves guidance and enters on evil. They follow their passions, their desires. And it means the whole range. It means their lustful desires. It means just their mental fancies, their whims. They start doing what they want to do. They start following what they want to follow. And so this is another thing for us to realize. This happens once they leave Salah, they also then start to follow their carnal lustful otherwise passions and then they will end, they will be encompassed by this thing called ghay and ghay again means some type of devastation punishment abomination right verses 64 and 65 this is actually referring to Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam what happens here in verses 64-65 Jibreel these are the words of Jibreel alayhi salam and he's responding 
But Allah Ta'ala is revealing to him how to respond to Sayyidina Rasulullah's question. What was the question? So when the Jews came to the Prophet and asked him, like we saw one thing earlier, Yes Alunaka an ruh they asked him concerning the Ruh, they asked him concerning the Qurnain, they asked him concerning Ashab al Kahf that we had done last year but is coming just before this in Surah eighteen, Surah Kahf. And immediately an answer did not come to the Prophet. So he was waiting. And he was waiting for Jibril to come. And when then the angel of came, the Prophet told him that, that I've been waiting for you. Meaning implying that, why didn't you come earlier? So here then, this is, these are the words of uh, Jibreel a.s. which he says to Sayyidina Rasulullah Rabbik That we do not, we means we, yani Jibreel a.s. We do not descend except when the command is issued from our Rabb, from your Rabb, from your Rabb. In other words, don't blame me. In Rabbik, it's your Rabb and His command, yani Allah's command, which determines when we descend. Aidina wa ma To Allah belongs what is before us and what is behind us. Wa ma zalika and whatever lies in between. وَمَا كَانَ رَبُّكَ نَسِيَّةً And your Rabb, He never forgets, never delays. Okay, what does this mean? That whatever is before us and whatever is behind us. Alright? Before us, in other words, what is in front of us and what is behind us. So this is a phrase used in Arabic language. بَيْنَ أَيْدِينَا وَمَا خَلْفَنَا What is in front of us and what is behind us. So different of the scholars have come up with different understandings and interpretations of this meaning. First is that whatever is in front of us means the future, whatever is behind us means the past, and whatever is between ma'bain means what is in between the two, yani the present. Second meaning is that whatever is before us means that everything that we see in the universe and all the physical creation that exists before the trumpet and horn will be blown and then Allah will fold the ball of creation and the end of time. So what is before us, what is in front of us means all of the physical creation. And whatever is behind us means when we descend, we leave the celestial heavenly realm. We leave that behind when we come down to you. So whatever is behind means the non-physical universe, the realms of Jannah and the angelic realms and the other realms of Allah as He knows best. Right? He is Rabbil Alameen. There are Atlam Alameen, there are multiple worlds. So it can mean that. What is between the two? So like you have this saying in Quran, Ma'afis Samawatu wa Ma'afil Ard, and whatever is between that. So whatever lies between the two means to encompass all of that. Another meaning is that whatever is in front of us, sorry, that was another, another what is in front of us means the Ard, and whatever is behind us refers to the Samawat. It can mean all of these things simultaneously. Some say then they've taken a more general thing that it means all of Zaman and Makan. Some would take it another level that what is in front of them is Zaman and Makan and what is behind them is La Makan Allahu wa La Zaman Allahu. Because in some sense, right, the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is outside of time. He's a timeless being and he has no spatiality. There's no spatial referential space that denotes or connotes or contains Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the angels are going in between these two realms when they're coming from Allah SWT to the Anbiya and to Sayyidina Rasulullah to give 
the message. Right. Then the next verse 65, Rabbu Samawati wal Ard, that Allah SWT is the Rabb of the Samawati wal Ard, again the same thing, that Allah tells the Rabb of the firmament, the earth, and what lies between the two. Fa'budhu, therefore you should worship Allah SWT. And here literally, Fa'bud as opposed to Fa'buduhu, so Fa'bud means you singular Sayyidina Rasulullah SAW. Obviously we have all been commanded to worship Allah SWT, but here specifically, Allah Ta'ala has revealed these words to Jibreel to say to the Prophet and tell him, don't worry, he was waiting for you, no problem. It's in my power and command when you come and everything that is in front and behind you lies in front of you, my angels, and tell the Prophet that he should simply just do ibadah. مُسْتَبِرْ لِعِبَادَتِهِ And he should be firm and steadfast in the ibadah of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And do you literally means do you know of any that share his name? In other words, is there anyone who shares the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Means in your ibadah you can never call upon any other being or worship any other one or do any other type of shirk. And this is the interesting thing what Allah is saying is in the past there has never been a false god called Allah. Meaning that none of the mushrikeen had labeled any of their idols Allah. They had different names for their idols. Greeks had different mythology. Zeus and Romans had mythology. No previous mythology or idolatry ever used the name Allah for any one of their mythical gods or any one of their false idols. So that is another meaning of this name. Then from verses 66 to 70 here, Allah Ta'ala is going to mention one of the great debates or questions or confusions of humanity, which is again true for the people of today. وَيُكُولُ insanu And humanity and people, they say, أَإِذَا مَا مِتُّ لَسَوْفَ أُقْرَجُ That once I have died, will I be resurrected alive after that death? Means a disbelief in the concept of resurrection and life after death. So here Allah Ta'ala says, it Does not humanity recall that I made him when he was nothing? Right? That I made him from he was nothing. You know, I created him once before when he didn't even seem when he was not even a single thing, when he was non-existence. And indeed Allah Ta'ala says that I swear by your Rabb Nabi Yakrim that I will surely and certainly resurrect and gather all of them. And all of the shayateen that were guiding them or who they chose to befriend. Thumma. And then, after I have gathered all of them, لَنُفْذِرَنَّهُمْ I will surely and certainly present them hawla jahannama jithiyya And I will present them all around jahannam jithiyya and they will be on their knees. They will be subjugated on their knees. Then after that, thumma, after doing that, لَنَنْزِعَنَّ مِنْ كُلِّ سِيْئَةٍ أَيُّهُمْ أَشَدُّ عَلَى الرَّحْمَانِ إِتِيَّةٍ Then I will separate from each faction and group those who were the most ashad, who were the most extreme itiyah in their rebellion and disobedience to Rahman, to the all-merciful Allah SWT. Then Allah Ta'ala says, ثُمَّ And then after that, 
لَنَحْنُ أَعْلَمُ بِالَّذِينَ هُمْ أَوْلَى بِهَا سِلِيَّةً Allah Ta'ala says that and I, we Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala are the most best knowing of those who are awla, who are the, have priority, have the most deserving of entering into Jahannam. All of this came on what discussion? This first thing that man says, humanity says, that how will I be resurrected? And if you look at it, many people who are skeptics and cynics and agnostics and atheists, it's the same question. How can you believe in life after death? How is it going to happen? I can't believe in something like that. We're just all going to enter the grave. There is no life, right? The same thing, you know, in other, with all of their sophistication and science and technology and education, they're still saying the same question that early medieval, pre-medieval, pre-pre-medieval people used to say. That how will that happen? How will that happen? So Allah Subhanahu responds, right, that okay, you're asking rationally. This is your complaint, that I cannot rationally understand how we'll be raised again. So again, I told you from revelation comes an answer on rationality, which is what Allah Ta'ala says, that don't you recall I'm already made you from nothing. So let's say you're 35 years old, 40 years ago you didn't exist, and now you exist. So before you were non-existent, and now you're existent. So even if you think you completely decompose in the grave and become non-existent, again you will become existent. So what's, what, what's irrational about that? The whole universe, according to all of modern science, was at once non-existent. And according to Big Bang, it became existence. So even at the meta level, they believe that about every single thing was non-existent and then came into existence. So why is it so shocking that Allah Ta'ala is saying the same thing is just going to happen again? They can view the Day of Judgment as Big Bang Sunny. <laughs> the second Big Bang. Hmm? Right? That all these humans who were non-existent because they had died, they will once again be brought into existence. So sometimes, yes, Allah subhanahu wa responds to that rationality that is rooted in Wahi revelation, that is coming from revelation, that is part of our deen. Right? Then, and here this is something that Allah subhanahu wa has mentioned uh, this topic in many different places of Quran, right? We just read a few things to you. Uh, Surah 36, verse 79. Does, Allah, does man not consider, does insan not consider that we made a minutfa, that from a mere drop, right? And then he asks this question still, that who will give life to bones while they're disintegrated when I've decomposed? So say to them, that same Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will revive the bones who created bone and calcium in the first place. And Allah ta'ala is all-knowing of His creation. Alright. Then, what is the second thing that happens? Is this question that they ask, that we will be, we, how we will be raised after death from 68, how does Allah ta'ala respond to them? That not only will I raise you up, I'm going to raise you up and gather you with all of those shayateen that you used to listen to. All of those western atheist professors that you fell under the sway of. Sometimes there's shayateen amongst insan. Sometimes shayateen from amongst the jinn. I will not only raise you up, I'm going to raise you up with them. That's what Allah says in Quran. And then I will gather all of you and I will put you in front of Jahannam such that you are subjugated on your knees. Allahu Akbar Kabira, right? And then, Allah Ta'ala says, He will separate out, that from amongst those people, there will be levels 
of evil amongst them. There will be those who were proponents of disbelief in Allah. There will be those who were dies, who invited people to disbelieve in Allah. There will be those who spoiled the iman of others. There will be more, and then there will be others who were just fodder and chattel, who just followed along, but weren't actually misleading others. I will separate. But all of you I will bring to that Jahannam. That I will separate those who are even more, most rebellious. Ashaddu Allah Rahman. And again Allah Ta'ala explains it this way. That they were rebellious against Al-Rahman. That notwithstanding Allah Ta'ala's infinite mercy, they still questioned and doubted and disbelieved and disobeyed and spread sedition and fitna and fasad on earth. And then Allah Ta'ala says that Allah Ta'ala knows this is very important. So it's not for us to say that somebody is going to go to Jahannam. Many times, this is another question that people love to ask. Oh, how can you, a Muslim, so do you really believe so and so to take somebody's name, whether it's Mother Teresa or Rockefeller or whoever they think is a wonderful person on earth? You really believe that person is going to hell? I said, no, we have nothing to do with that person. We have no belief whatsoever about any individual person. All we can say is what Allah Ta'ala said in the Qur'an about the unbelievers. Who the unbelievers are, this is Allah. Ta'ala saying in the Qur'an, nahnu a'lamu, That Allah Ta'ala knows best. Allah knows best. It's not our job. It's not our, we have not been made responsible on earth to discover who's going to Jahannam or not. That's not our job. Nor do we make any such claim, nor does the deen tell you to do that, nor does the deen to think like that. So you should clear that person's mind that no, we are not trained to think like that. Our deen does not tell us to point fingers at so and so and say they're in Jahannam. Our deen does not teach us to mock people's philanthropy and say, oh, it's okay, you're going to go to Jahannam anyway. We don't think like that. You are casting us in a negative light. You are negatively stereotyping us as if that's how we think. That's not how our deen has told us to think. Our deen teaches us Allah Ta'ala knows best. We have no idea. Only Allah knows about these people. If somehow we were to get the clear, irrefutable knowledge that someone was an unbeliever, the way Allah Ta'ala knows who they are, if we knew that, yes, then we would say without hesitation they're going to Jannam, because that's what the Quran says. But we don't know. Only Allah Ta'ala knows. Right? But there will be a Jahannam. This is clear. This is one of those many ayat that talk about this. Alright? In Surah 16, verse 88, Allah Ta'ala mentions Surah 16 is Surah Nahal, verse 88. Something we did towards the end of last year about people who disbelieve and lead others astray. To show you this concept of le- levels. Who are those who are ashaddu atiyya? Alladheena kafaru wasaddu an sabilillah. That those who denied Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala disbelieved and they stopped others from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They mocked people. So, oh, tu maulvi ban Huh? What's the matter with you? What's happened to you? Hmm? You're confused. You've been deluded. This is all a myth. Islam was all just social fiction. Right? They tried to convince you and take you away from the path. So, Alladina kafaru, those who disbelieved, but didn't live and let live. We're not liberal. Liberal philosophy is that, okay, you disbelieve, but you live and let live. They were not liberal. They were illiberal disbelievers. They decided to stop people from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They tried to dictate their choice. They didn't leave them free to choose Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They actively, dynamically removed their freedom to choose Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَسَدُّ أَنْ سَبِيلِ 
So what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say about them? Zidnahum azaban fawqal azab. That we will increase them in a punishment upon punishment upon punishment. We will increase them in their punishment due to the facade and the corruption that they spread. So they're levels. They're levels. Right? They're levels. So if anybody wants to see that does the Quran say anything about liberalism? Yes. Because the Quran talks about illiberalism. People who stop and prevent others. And that that is viewed as an evil in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's eyes. Alright? Then verses number 71-72 continue this about Jahannam. وَإِمْ illa That there is no one of you, humanity, except that you will pass by the Jahannam, literally pass by it. This is the reference to the bridge. That every insan will be made to pass over it. And this is a kana ala rabbika, that this is a command of your rabb. Hatman. This is hatman magdiya. This is a absolute decree from your rabb that every single member of humanity will have to pass over it. Now, obviously, the depends on a person, right? This greatest of the mu'mineen will pass across it on lightning speed. Less strong mu'mineen may have some, they will pass over it, but they may have some difficulty passing over it. may take them longer. They may be slightly or more than slightly, Allahu Alam, singed and tinged by the flames of Jahannam leaping up at them. The unbelievers will be unable to pass over it. They will pass and then they will drop into it. And there may be some sinning believers who also drop into it only then to be taken out eventually due to their iman, due to their good deeds, due to the shafa of Nabi Akrim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? So this is the ayah that is referring to that phenomenon. Again, there are many hadith that talk about the crossing of the sirat or the bridge over hell. Then Allah Ta'ala says, ثُمَّ Then we will rescue, give salvation Alladina taqaw, those who had taqwa. Those who had taqwa will be rescued from this passing over Jahannam, passing over the fire of Jahannam. Manadru zalimina fiha. And then we will leave the unjust and oppressors. Jithiya, again we will leave them in a state of subjugation or we will leave them there on their knees. Alright. So here up to verse 72, some discussion of Jannah. 73 onward, Allah Ta'ala is going to talk about Qur'an al-Kareem and previous generations and how they responded to Qur'an. So 73, when our ayat, our verses and signs of revelation were recited to them, all the ones who denied to believe say to the believers, ayyul fariqin, that which of the two groups khayrum maqaman wa ahsanu nadiyya which of the ones has a better position and which of them has an asan, more noble, more refined, more beautiful Nadiya gathering? So Allah Ta'ala's response to this, How many generations did we just destroy before you, before them, who were better off than them, they were asan, they were better off than them in their wealth, their resources, their appearance, their lifestyle? Ul say mankana fil dalala that Allah Ta'ala will mankana fil dalala fal yamuddu fal yamdud lahur rahmanu madda 
that Allah subhanahu wa will grant them respite, those who are astray. Means maybe they will come back, maybe they will do that tawbah, renew their iman, do amal salih. That respite will last until when? Until the, what, that which has been promised to them, which is what? This is death, the end of time, right? And then what will happen? Immal adab wa imma sa'a. Either a punishment will afflict them or a sa'a or the day of judgment, the hour will come over them. makana. So then they will know who is in the worst position and who has the weakest army. So this is referring to a couple of things. The first verse is that the unbelievers insinuated that look, you're inviting us to believe. Let's take a look here. Who is better off in this world? Who is richer? Who's got the better society? You believers or us unbelievers? Because initially, the vast number of the initial adherents to Islam were from the poor. And the ones who were the, va- the majority of the ones who were denying and rejecting belief were from the rich people of Quraysh and the rich tribes of Makkah So what did they do? They said, look, if Islam is true, you wouldn't be in the Lord. It's the same thing people say today. If Islam is true, then why is most of the Muslim countries in the third world? If Islam is true, why is there poverty in the Muslim world? There's not poverty in the Western world. It's exactly the same thing people did today. Allah Ta'ala answered that in Quran. It's the same thing the Kufar said of Makkah They look at these Farikain, let's first do a little analysis of the worldly status of these two groups of believers and disbelievers. That's why we don't accept Iman. So Allah Ta'ala says, no, it's not about how status in the world. It's about status in the Akhirah. Why are you looking at that? And if you don't want to have Iman in that, Allah Ta'ala then says in the next ayah, on the Day of Judgment, they will see it themselves. They will see that on the Day of Judgment, who's in the best position? Not as opposed to who in this world is in the best position. And specifically the things they look at, wealth, affluence, this notion of ahsan means more beauty, refinery. Who has more refinery, who has more embellishment, right? That is what they look at. So as a young Muslim man and woman, you should never be deceived that way. So look, if Islam was true, then we would be this and we would be that and we're not and the advanced societies today. Let me mention to you a couple of things. First of all, when the complete truth of Islam was practiced by Muslim society, you had within 20 years, and world historians acknowledge this, the radical change from pre-Islamic Arabia to Sahaba civilization. Such a rapid revolution and transformation, even in a worldly sense, I'm even talking from an atheist historical perspective, that such a drown-trodden group of tribes who even the empires of Rome and Persia didn't even view them worthy to spit on, became within one generation of Sahaba, before the last Sahaba passed away, became a greater civilization than that of Rome and Persia. In entire human history, there has never been such a revolution of fortune or wealth or affluence or global status on the world as that time. Because they were the ones who most truly practiced Islam. So that can happen. Islam has that power in any case. That if it is implemented completely and truly, it will lead to that again. Second, for many centuries this continued while the West and Europe was going through its dark ages. Right? Islam was in its golden period. And yes, as then Muslims then, there are two things that happened. Number one, there was a spiritual decline amongst the Muslims. So yes, that led to their decline in this world. And second, 
the rules of the game changed. How is it that the West took out the Muslim world in a worldly sense? There are two things, industrial revolution and colonialism. These were the two things that you see the Muslim world is higher, the West is lower. Then all of a sudden the Muslims go flat because of their spiritual decline and all of a sudden the West starts to surge. Then the West starts becoming more in worldly sense superior. What was that change? That was the industrial revolution and colonialism. Industrial revolution and colonialism, the way the West did these things, the Muslims could never have done them. We could never do that. It's against our religion to do what they did. What do I mean? Number one, industrial revolution. doesn't mean to invent machines. We're fine with that. But they enslaved their own labor class. This is why Marx became Marx. They oppressed their workers. They made them work 12, 14, 16 hours in mines, in factories. They squeezed them out. And then they gave all of that money concentrated in the hands of the rich. So the Muslims, we don't have that in our history. We never did anything like that. So the material progress of the West is based on oppression of their own labor class. It's based on oppression and injustice. And Muslim religion, never, Islam never allowed that. Then the second thing that they did was once they squeezed their own people dry, they squeezed their own labor, their own minds dry, then they decided to use violent force. It's not liberal. (laughs) Completely illiberal through violent force go and invade and occupy other innocent people and countries only to squeeze their minds and their people dry to send the slaves of Africa to America to squeeze America dry. Islamists would never have allowed this either. So these are two things that enabled them to surpass the Muslim world in terms of their wealth. Then there's a third thing that Islam also wouldn't allow. Once they did that and they had all the wealth, then they secured that wealth in a global financial system based on interest. That's the third thing Islam never allows. Right? So yes, they are materially superior to the Muslim world today. But they got that way through rape, murder, pillage, occupation, invasion, colonialism. Right? America actually belongs to the Native Americans. Right? Okay, here. So, just a little bit of lecturing for you. Back to the tafsir. But see, Allah found this is the thing. So this is a very, the point was this is a very faulty way of thinking. Don't ever think like that. That you're going to judge your belief or not based on who is wealthy in this world or who is powerful in this world or not. That would be a mistake. Same mistake those kuffar of Makkah Makkah made. Same mistake that some people in this world are making today. Okay, then verse number 76. That Allah Ta'ala will increase those people who submit to Hidayah, Ihtida, right? Ihtida means from Ihtiyal, Ihtida. They accept guidance, adopt guidance. Allah Ta'ala will give more Hidayah to them. So this is known as the third type of Hidayah. First type of Hidayah, we did this for lessons. The first Hidayah is that which is given to every single human. That Allah Ta'ala guides them in how to discover and believe in Him. 
Second is that hidayah that comes to people who have iman. That's the dua we make. That's the dua mu'mineen make. But now we ask to give us hidayah. Now we have first hidayah was to have iman in you. Now that we have iman, second hidayah is how should we practice our life? What is that siratul mustaqim, that life that is lived according to iman? And then the person who does that, who follows that second hidayah, follows all of the dictates of Islam, they get a third type of hidayah that is being referred to in this verse. They get yet another hidayah. Those who follow hidayah, they get yet another hidayah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That hidayah can mean many, many things, right? It can mean itminan and sakun in this world. It can be hikmah when making their decisions. It can be hidayah on how to do dawah. It can be many, many things. <coughs> and those salihat, which means those pious acts, acts of ibadah, acts of worship, or acts of adab and akhlaq, those which are baqiyat, those which are lasting, that you do regularly, you don't leave, and they last. Khairun in the Rabbik, they are better in the sight of your Rabb. Thawaban, in terms of thawab, they will be better. Allah Ta'ala will give you more reward for them. Wukhairun maradda, and they will have a better consequence for you on the Day of Judgment. You will, have a, you will get more out of them on the Day of Judgment. Alright? Okay. So what are these baqiyat salihat Right? So these are those a'mal that a person does, for example, a sadaqa jariyah, that you do an act of charity that lasts until the end of time, right? Was making a masjid, making an institute of Islamic learning, making some way of khidmat. Ilm is also a sadaqa jariyah. Somebody writes a tafsir. Still today we read or refer to or reference people who wrote tafsir a thousand years ago, right? That was something that was lasting for them. Something that lasted. So those things that last... Baqiyat, those salihat will give us more reward in our book of deeds, they can offset more of our sins, and there will be more benefit and reward to us on the day of judgment. 77 to 80, then Allah Ta'ala then goes back to the kuffar who are so enamored of their wealth and children in this world, they think they will get everything back to them in Jannah. In other words, they will get their money back on the day of judgment, and they will be used, able to use that wealth to populate themselves in the akhirah. So, أَفَرَأَيْتَنْ لَذِي كَفَرَ بِآيَاتِنَا that Have you not seen that person who has rejected our signs and verses of revelation and disbelieved? وَقَالَ And what does he say? That I will certainly be granted my wealth and my children. So Allah Ta'ala says, أَتَّلَ الْغَيْبَ أَمِتَّخَدَ إِنْدَ الرَّحْمَانِ أَحْدَ have they been able to, have they been bestowed with a vision or information of the unseen? Have they come to know what is unknown? Or have they taken a pact from Allah SWT? Have they extracted a promise from Allah SWT that this is going to happen to them? Kalla, never, never, never could such a thing happen. And very soon, sanaktubu ma yuqul, we are going to record what this person has said, each and every statement that they state. And then, we will continue to punish them min al-adhabi madda. We will continue to intensify the punishment over them. وَنَرْثَهُ مَا يَقُولُوا وَيَأْتِينَا And Allah Ta'ala says that we shall be the owners of what He says and He will come to us alone. As we will inherit this, this wealth in children that's going to ultimately end up with Allah Ta'ala. It's not going to ultimately be restored to Him. And he will come to us farda. He will come to us all alone, solitary. 
without that wealth and children that they pride upon. This incident uh, is a hadith in Bukhari that there was an incident between a mushrik by the name of As and a sahaba, that same Sayyidina Khabab, uh, a different Khabab, Sayyidina Khabab ibn Arat radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And this mushrik As owed Sayyidina Khabab some money because Sayyidina Khabab was a goldsmith. And then As told him that I've decided that I will never pay you back. I'm never going to pay you back that loan. Until you apostate from Islam. Until you leave your belief in the nabuat of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. So Sayyidina Khabar I will never do that. I'm never going to leave my belief in my beloved Messenger Wasallam. So uh, until you die, I will never leave it. And even when you were resurrected, I will never leave it. So Asp was a mushrik. Asp said, what do you mean I'll be resurrected? That I'll be given life to so Sayyidina Khabar said, yes, you will be resurrected. So then As said to him mockingly that, okay, when I'm resurrected, so I'll have my money, because I'll be born again, so I'll give you your loan, I'll pay you off your loan then, when I get resurrected. So on this occasion, Allah Ta'ala revealed this verse, that no, you're not going to be resurrected with your money and your children, right? <clears throat> so many times you find this, that when the kuffar used to mock the Sahaba Ikram even, this is an of that, or the kuffar mocked the Prophet ﷺ, other incidents like that, or the kuffar mocked the deen generally, Allah Taala would send his verses of revelation. That's a sign for us, that obviously no more revelation is going to come. But Allah Taala does not like it when people mock his deen. Allah Taala does not like it when people mock Quran. And he used to respond to them immediately. Kark jawabata. Immediately the answer would come. But now, because the doors of revelation are closed, so that's not going to happen, but it shows you how much dislike Allah Ta'ala has, how much anger Allah Ta'ala has for mocking. And here, when you see this particular ayah, so this is a sahaba who is being mocked, to which this ayah came as a response. So that means, when a sahaba means, generally you can say a person who is following deen, a practitioner of deen. So when people mock the followers of deen for following deen, Allah SWT is very unhappy about that. Allah SWT is very unhappy about that. Alright, verses number 81 to... Yes, 81 to 84. Then Allah SWT says that actually, basically this passage is that actually the believers themselves will be mocked, are being mocked by the idols they worship. It's a mockery, the idols that they worship, and on the Day of Judgment, their false gods will deny the worship of their worshippers and those false gods will instead become their own enemies. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse 81 that they leave Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what have they done? They have taken alihatan gods other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? izza, So that they will get izza from that. That's what they thought. That their izzat is going to lie in worshipping these idols or these false gods as opposed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Again, kalla. Never could this be a source of izzat for you that you worship these idols. Sayyakfuruna bi ibadatihim wa yakununa alayhim zidda. And in fact, their same god, false gods and idols that they worship, they will reject and deny the worship of those who worship them 
and then they will become zid, literally opposite, means they will become adversaries and enemies to those people who worship them on the Day of Judgment. And this, and have you not seen that we have afflicted upon the disbelievers? We have sent the shayateen and set the shayateen upon them and sent them to them. Who are the ones, such shayateen, who instigate them tremendously? So, when a person leaves iman, they become open up to the attacks and waswasa of shaitan. فَلَا تَعْجَلْ عَلَيْهِمْ So do not be hasty with regard to them. إِنَّمَا نَعُدُّ لَهُمْ That we are meticulously keeping record and track of everything it is that they do. And we are waiting, and he's translated, we are counting them down for a countdown, means that everything is being kept track of, everything is being recorded, and we are just waiting for them to come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So on this ayah number 82... In Surah 46, verse number 6, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned, وَإِذَا حُشُرَ النَّاسِ That when humanity will be gathered and resurrected, قَانُوا لَهُمْ أَعْدَاءً That they will have enemies. Who? Though everyone they worshipped, every being they worshipped, will stand as an enemy to them, وَقَانُوا بِعِبَادَتِهِمْ kafirin, And they will reject and spurn and deny the ibadah that these people used to do of them. Alright. And when Allah subhanahu says, do not be hasty with them, Allah subhanahu saying is, you don't have to haste and try to combat them, or you don't have to get vexed and frustrated at their mocking. Allah subhanahu is, their days are numbered, and their days are being counted, their actions are being recorded, and even if they live a long life in this world, or they have a long life of opposition to Islam in this world, even that is nothing, it's ma'dud, it's just enumerated, counted, compared to the life of the Akhirah. Now Allah subhanahu wa mentions two ways of describing the Day of Judgment. يَوْمَ نَحْشُرُ الْمُتَّقِينَ إِلَى الرَّحْمَانِ wafta. This will be that day when Allah Ta'ala says we resurrect and gather and summon the muttaqeen. And we bring them to Ar-Rahman, all-merciful Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, wafta as a delegation of guests. As a delegation of guests in front of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. And on the other hand, مُنَسُوكُ الْمُجْرِمِينَ إِلَى جَهَنَّمَ وِرْدَ And then we will drag, we will drag the mujrims, we will drag the criminals and the wrongdoers, they will be dragged. Right, and they will be dragged. How they will be dragged means they will be dragged towards uh, the fire of Jahannam. All right, then only those la shafa'a, only those illa min in the rahmani ahda. No one will have the ability to intercede on behalf of those who are being dragged towards Jahannam, except that person whom. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given an ahad that whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has pledged or covenanted that they will have the ability to intercede. Alright. So this is two groups in the Day of Judgment. Those who were pious and those who were criminal. This notion of intercession, I did this in detail when we did Surah Baqarah. Right? And we, at that point we did all of the different verses about intercession. Simply speaking that this verse also is making clear that there will be some people who will be allowed to intercede. 
and that includes Sayyidina Rasulullah includes the pious mu'mineen can also intercede for others. Right? Okay. Now Allah Ta'ala is going to return back to a particular group of unbelievers which are those people who say that Allah SWT that Sayyidina Isa is the son of Allah SWT. And according to some reports, some of the Jews at that time also were claiming that Sayyidina Uzair Sayyidina Isa is the son of Allah SWT and some Jews were claiming that Sayyidina Uzair is the son of Allah SWT وَقَالُوا اتَّخَذَ الرَّحْمَانُ وَلَدًا So these people, their statement is what do they say? That Ar-Rahman, All-Merciful, Allah SWT has taken a son. لَكِدْ جِئْتُمْ شَيْءًا إِدَّا That you have indeed brought, means through this act of saying, you have brought to Allah SWT a gravely tremendous, enormous thing that you have done and said and believed. And if you bring that to Allah on the Day of Judgment, that will be an immense thing. How does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how intense a thing is this? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the heavens could split asunder because of this. The earth could be rendered open and burst apart because of this. The mountains may crash and be crushed to pieces because of this. This is such an immense thing that you have said. That Allah ta'ala has a sun. This is a sky rendering, earth rendering, mountain collapsing, the enormity of this statement that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can take a sun. Now imagine if that statement can render the sky, burst the earth, collapse the mountain. What is it going to do to a feeble insan? <laughs> insan does not have the expanse of the sky, does not have the weight of a mountain, does not have the stability of the earth. It will completely obliterate a person if they start thinking that Allah subhanahu wa has a son. And then all this, so all of this is because they have ascribed a son to all merciful Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. While what? وَمَا يَنْبَغِي لِلْرَحْمَانِ أَنْ يَتَّخِذَ وَلَدَ Again, it does not befit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala al-Rahman to have a son. Every single thing in كُلَّ مَنْ فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْنِ إِلَّا آتِيَ الرَّحْمَانِ أَبْدَى Every single thing in the samawat and ard will come to Allah Rahman or merciful Allah SWT as slaves. Abda is a singular as a slave. And Allah SWT لَقَدْ أَحْسَاهُمْ وَعَدَّهُمْ عَدَّى And Allah SWT has encompassed each and every single thing and Allah SWT has numbered them precisely. وَكُلُّهُمْ آتِيهِ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ فَرْدًا and each one of them will come to Allah Ta'ala alone on the Day of Judgment. Something we mentioned to you before. All of the people will be gathered together. Allah Ta'ala knows each and every one of their numbers. And then each one will individually, solitarily be presented in front of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So Sayyidina Abu Hurairah narrates from the Prophet in Hadith in Bukhari that Things that we shouldn't do, put it this way. So the son of Adam Islam has falsified me, whereas he should not. I Meaning, he has, there are some people from Bani Adam who disbelieve in the existence of Allah SWT and they should not do so. There are some who curse me and they should not do so. Right? And what is that kufr and cursing? Is that he says, I cannot resurrect him. Whereas it is equally easy to me to create him the second time as I did the first time. How is it that he, they curse me? They curse me by saying that I have a son. 
to Allah Ta'ala in the Sadith in Bukhari, the Prophet is saying that Allah Ta'ala says that attributing a son to Allah Ta'ala is like cursing Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. So they curse me by saying that I have a son, whereas I, Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, am pure from having wife and children. I am Ahad, I am Mustaghni, I am the one, the Ghani, the independent. Nam yalid walam yulad, I beget not, nor was I begotten. There is nothing equal to me. Right? So this is why it's viewed as such an immense thing that every single thing in the universe would tremble before uttering such a statement that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a son. Alright. 96-98 This is now about the mu'mineen. As for those inna ladhina amanu wa amanu salihat As for those people who had iman and who had done righteous acts of worship and deeds then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make a wudda Allah Allah places a wudda between them. Wudda means a love and affection between them. Right? This was once a whole topic of a talk. But basically those who have iman and amal salih, Allah Ta'ala in this world and in the akhirah puts a love and compassion in the hearts of people. This you can also understand from a hadith in Bukhari. That Sayyidina Abu Hurairah said, that Sayyidina Rasulullah said, that when Allah Ta'ala loves a person, He calls the angel Jibreel alayhi salam. Inna Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala idha ahabba abdan nada Jibreel. That when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves a person, He calls the angel Jibreel alayhi salam. Inna Allah kad ahabba. That I know that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves fulan and such and such. فَأَحِبُّهُ That you should love him as well. فَيُحِبُّهُ Jibreel Then angel Jibreel starts loving him. ثُمَّ يُنَادِ جِبْرَيْلُ فِي السَّمَاءِ Then the angel Jibreel some calls out in the heavens from it. إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ أَحَبَّ فُلَانًا Indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves so and so. فَأَحِبُّهُ All of creation is announced this that you should love him. فَيُحِبُّهُ أَحْلُ السَّمَاءِ that all of the ones in the celestial realm in the heavens love this person. And then, Kubuliya is placed in that person, uh, placed for that person amongst the people of this earth. So this is uh, a hadith in the Sahih of Bukhari. And what is this is this notion of the Wudda. That Allah Ta'ala puts love, makes all the creation, angelic creation, worldly creation, love the people who truly are beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and who are the people whom Allah ta'ala loves? The people who have iman and the people who do amal salih. Right? Next Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That indeed we have made the Quran easy on your tongue. Here first, literally, the sonic means on the tongue of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So you may give glad thanks to the muttaqeen. وَتُنْذِرَ بِهِ قَوْمًا And so that you may warn by means of this Qur'an, that qawm, that community, those groups of people who deny and quarrel and take issue and reject the Qur'an. But it's also been understood to mean that Qur'an al-Kareem is easy to recite on the tongue for the entire ummah. So recitation and understanding of Qur'an al-Kareem is easy for this ummah. And this is the targheeb really that the ulama gave that why you should study tajweed and from a scholar of tajweed and study tasteer from a scholar of tasteer. 
or from Makhir, but because Allah Ta'ala has made this easy. And this is the because we think it's difficult. So if you ever think that, no, how am I going to do it? How am I going to fix my tajweed? I feel it's so difficult. I open my mouth and the letter comes out incorrectly. I don't want to pronounce properly. Just think, yes, it might be apparently difficult, but this act of learning tajweed is something that has barakah that Allah Ta'ala will make it easy. Allah Ta'ala has put his mother the nusrat in this. Right? And similarly, the act of understanding and especially taking hidayah from Qur'an it may seem outwardly apparently difficult to you, but Allah Ta'ala has made it easy to do so. So once you start on the proper way, Allah Ta'ala will give you that hidayah. On the other hand, being easy doesn't mean, right, that you can just do these things on your own. That you come up with your own system of tajweed and then you teach yourself that system of tajweed. It's not going to be that easy that you can do so without expert help, without formal instruction. And the same thing, just like that's true in tajweed, for the pronunciation of Qur'an, just like that, that will be true for the ilm of Qur'an. Right? And then the last uh, ayah of this surah, Allah subhanahu wa kam ahlakna qablahum min karn. And how many communities are there that we have destroyed before you? How many generations upon generations? And what does it mean? Allah SWT is here simply referring to the phenomenon of death. How many millions of people were there alive before us? So if there are 1.2 billion people alive today, 50 years ago there was a different set of a billion people alive. 50 years before that there was a different set of a billion people alive. And there's no trace of them. There's no trace of them whatsoever. This is what Allah SWT says, right? How to hissu minhum min ahad is there even any one of them that you can even have any hiss of? Can you even have any trace of any of them? They're completely vanished. Completely vanished. Everybody who lived in the 20s and 30s is gone. Everybody who lived in the 1800s is gone. 1880s is gone. 1860s, they're gone. People who lived in the 1820s, they're gone. People who lived in the 1780s, they're gone. They're all gone. Every single one is gone without a trace. Rikza, do you even hear any whisper from them? They've completely gone, nor, nor can you see any trace of them, nor can you even hear a whisper from them. So here at the end then, the last one ayah is almost like a stand-alone, single ayah in conclusion to this whole surah, right? And that this is the ultimate lesson to be learned for us as believers. Right? That yes, Allah Ta'ala is showing us in Quran the stories of these previous generations, the disputes the Christians had with one another and then with the Prophet, the mocking and disputes that the Ahlul Quraysh had with Makkah Mukarramah, and then all of the history of all of humanity, all of that maybe we may read about it, but those people, Ahad, every single one of those people, they've all vanished and gone without a trace. And we ourselves are also destined to vanish in a similar way, such that nobody will ever be able to see us, nobody will ever be able to hear us. We are also destined for that end. And so better that before we reach that end, that we prepare for that end, we make our life according to Qur'an al-Kareem, we heed the lessons of Qur'an and the warnings of Qur'an. So we take a break now here, it's almost four, and we've ended so Maryam, then we come back after the break, we will... Inshallah Taha. This is Surah number twenty of Quran. Surah Taha. 
This surah is Makki and it has 135 ayat and according to many reports this is that surah of Quran that Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Farooq radiallahu ta'ala anhu he read and recited when he came into his sister's home Sayyidina Fatima radiallahu ta'ala who was the name of his sister is a different Fatima from the Fatima who was the daughter of the Prophet sallallahu and after he accosted her and his brother-in-law then he recited this part of Quran and this is a very interesting thing because in this surah most of the surahs about Sayyidina Musa now Sayyidina Umar before he accepted Islam he was not from the Ahli Kitab he was may not even notwithstanding that there were a handful of Jews and Christians but most of the people in Arabia had not even really heard anything about Judaism and Christianity. So, why was Sayyidina Umratana moved so much by this? Well, many people offer many reasons. One simplest and most correct reason is just because it was Qur'an, right? And Qur'an, whether the topic is Sayyidina Musa Islam, whether the topic is Sayyidina Rasulullah whether it's addressing the Mashrikeen of Makkah, that is the power of Qur'an. And it's something to note for us, because these are not the passages that are addressed towards Mushrikeen, which is what technically speaking Sayyidina Umar was before he became Muslim. So he had passages that were not directly, necessarily relevant, pertinent to him and his life. Second thing to note here is that it shows you the power of these stories in Quran, because sometimes when people go through the Quran, they they just want, okay, just tell me what's the hidayah for me. Why there's so many stories of past communities and past prophets and past messengers? Well, again, because their stories, Allah Ta'ala has preserved particular aspects of them in Quran because they have an impact on our heart. And when Sayyidina Umar Radiallahu he read this and recited it, it impacted his heart. Third reason some say was because that Sayyidina Umar Radiallahu was what we call Musavi al Mashrab. He was, yes, he had the same Jalali Tabiyat as Sayyidina Musa Salam. So that resonated with him a lot when he read about Sayyidina Musa because he was also from a similar temperament. Allahu Alam, any and all of these can be reasons. The reality is that this is what Allah Ta'ala wanted to happen on that day and this was the surah that Allah Ta'ala wanted him to read and this was the sabab through which Allah Ta'ala granted him hidayah. So this is one important thing to remember about Surah Taha. In fact, some of you may have heard our own Sheikh once he was in America in the 80s, his first visit to America. And Qari Abdu'l-Basad Abdu'l-Samad from Egypt was there. And our Sheikh actually was part of this group who organized him to recite Quran in Washington, D.C. And then he also made a small talk. And in that talk, he narrated his own incident that Jamal Nasser took him with him to the Soviet Union. And then he asked Ali Abdul Basad Abdul Samad to recite Quran in, I forget what they call it, I guess they call it the Kremlin, their parliament, right? The Kremlin. And he says, he said about himself that I was thinking, what should I recite? He says, okay, I'll recite Surah Taha because they had an effect on Sayyidina Umar. So then Ali Abdul Basad Abdul Samad in that gathering in DC said that when I was in the Kremlin and I recited the Surah, five senior members of the Communist Party started crying. And then he said that when I was done reciting, then Jamal Nasser through the translator asked, you know, what happened to you? And they responded that we have no idea what happened to us and we did not understand a word of what this person was reciting 
but his what he was whatever it was that he was reciting just moved us so much. So perhaps there is some special power in Surah Taha to impact the heart of a person who is an unbeliever. Alright? So that means that, that given that then we are at least believers at some level, right? So if it has that power that it can impact the heart of unbelievers, then surely it and every part of Quran has the power that it should be able to impact our heart. So with that near we read everything in Quran and also we read this surah. Allah subhanahu Allah Subhanahu says in Quran to Nabi that we have not revealed the Quran so as to cause you any cause you Sayyidina Rasulullah any difficulty. Again, Alaika and Alaikum. Alaika means in English it's just gonna say you. Alaika means you singular Sayyidina Rasulullah. It is not for us that oh Allah Ta'ala says I'm not reveal Quran to cause you any difficulty. I'm finding things difficult. No. Why was this said? So the ulama have mentioned several reasons for this. First reason is that when the revelation used to come, and this is a whole separate topic, and you can listen to our friend Sheikh Hussain's talk on this. He's taught Babun Kefakana Bad al Wahi from the Sahih Imam Bukhari, in which it describes the different ways revelation came on the Prophet and how many times that would overwhelm him. And so not just outwardly, but even inwardly, it was, let's say, difficult, let's say, a very big, tremendous moment that would come to the Prophet ﷺ, such that he would be sometimes exhausted by that. That's one meaning of this. Second is that when the revelation was revealed, Sayyidina Rasulullah used to recite long passages and repeat in the beginning even, in his night Hajjud Salah, as all of you know, so much so that his heels and ankles became swollen so that was another voluntary if you will but a difficulty that he had put him in he had chosen third meaning is that according to some of us that the mushrikeen when they used to see this because sometimes they would happen to be there when the Muslim would see revelation and they would see him undergo that experience so again they would mock and they would say oh look this is you know your revelation is causing you difficulty it's not a nice deen. It's something that is of harm or hardship for you. Fourth is the difficulty. Some of us say that what means here is that Sayyidina Rasulullah when the unbelievers would not accept Quran, that caused them great difficulty. The unacceptance of Quran in the hearts of the disbelievers. That used to, and that obviously we know, that used to be a source of great grief and sorrow to Sayyidina Rasulullah that can also be called a... Uh, a difficulty and this interpretation is backed up by Surah Kahaf which we did in verse number 6 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala consoles in a sense Sayyidina Baqin Nafsaka Allah in Lam Yu'minu Hadithi Asafa that you should not destroy yourself after them in grief because they do not believe in this Hadith, but here Hadith means Quran al-Karim, Hadith means in this news, in this narration, in the narration of revelation. Right? So all of these meanings can be there. All of these meanings are there. Right? Then Allah Ta'ala says that, uh, However, illa However, the Quran al-Karim is a tadkira, is an advice, admonishment, nasiha, for that person who fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
So what was it, then in taking on the last one, what was it that the people were missing? They didn't fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a problem a lot of us, the contemporary Muslim has. Is that we may approach the Qur'an sincerely, we may approach it genuinely to learn, but we don't have the khashiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in our heart. Therefore we read it with complete iman. We 100% believe it's the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When we listen and hear and understand the meanings, our mind intellectually completely agrees and submits to the meanings, but it doesn't change us. It doesn't change our life. It doesn't change our action. It doesn't change how we are. For that, that mean, that what tadhkira means. That you actually receive and attain advice from it. You internalize it. It changes you. That happens for a person who has the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in their heart. And that's our problem. We're so fearless we can read Quran, recite Quran, study Quran, teach Quran, and then still do sin. Because we're fearless. So that means then, if the Quran cream is going to benefit that person who has fear. Right? So it's not door that, okay, I'm going to get the fear from the Quran. You're going to get the fear from Quran when you fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it means you have to get fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where can you get that? You can get fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the people who fear Him. When you get the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the people who fear Him, then you're ready to get the Quran from the people who know Quran. So this is an aspect of our deen. And you find many by Allah Ta'ala in the very beginning, say, Hudal al-Muttaqeen. It's hidayah for the people who have taqwa. Now where are they going to get the taqwa from? You have to get it from the other, from people who already have it from Muttaqeen. Alright. Reveal tanzilam mimman khalaq al-arda samawat al-ula. This is revealed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that being who created this earth, the expanse of the earth and the Lofty Samawat, the Ula, the high Samawat. Then Al Rahman Al Al Arshistawa. This is something that we did when it came in Surah. I did this for you once before last year in Surah Araf, right? This is not meant literally. Now, this is one of the most debated verses of Quran amongst a certain group of small academic circles. Did Allah Ta'ala literally, does He literally sit on the Arsh? No. And even for me to make an Ishara like that is not allowed. <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa does not have a physical body that he can position himself physically on top of the arsh. This is a symbolic statement. So istiwa al-arsh is symbolic. It means Allah ta'ala directed his attention to governing the affairs of this world after he created it. So you saw, and you will always see that it comes in this context. So the first thing is Allah ta'ala created the earth. Before it's created, Allah Ta'ala is not sending His Rahmah on earth, it doesn't exist. Before it's created, Allah Ta'ala is not sending Barakah on earth, it doesn't exist. Before it's created, Allah Ta'ala doesn't place risk on earth, it doesn't exist. After creating it, then you have this istiwa al-arsh, means symbolically now Allah Ta'ala is focused on the world. He's directing His mercy onto the world, guiding everything in the world, creating, continually creating new and new creation, giving new and new life in this world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's divine attributes are now focused on the world. Whereas before they weren't. So the arsh just refers not to Allah ta'ala physically doing that, but refers to a nexus or a, mm, a direction of Allah ta'ala's effort and interest and awareness onto the world. Alright? And Allah and the notion of istiwa is a permanent settling, what does it mean? That Allah subhanahu is the sole Malik. Once He creates the world, He is Malik and He remains Malik. That's the notion of istiwa. He remains like that. 
Allah never takes a break from running the affairs of this world. And it's Allah, Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone who runs the affairs of this world. That is the meaning being conveyed from that word istiwa. And to Allah belongs in his possession under and falls under his mastery and dominion every single thing that is in the heavens and is in the earth and all that lies between the two. And whatever is beneath thara. Okay. Now what is this thara? What does this mean? So there are some verses of Quran and also in hadith that you more often you see this term Saba Samawat but there's also this notion of Saba seven earths and so the seventh earth what is beneath that seventh earth is referred to as Thura now you could call it literally it also means earth or it means clay right uh, it means some level of dominion some alam that is there so the notion is you have the Samawat and the Ard, seven Samawat and seven Ard, that is, denotes all of the physical creation. And Allah subhanahu is also the master of everything that is beyond them. Beyond, for our sake of our human understanding, the concept of beyondness is being plotted as two-dimensional. One is folk and one is Tahat. One is what is above and beyond this known physical realm. And that is normally enough in English, we just talk about in one dimension. But in the Arabic idiomatic expression, there's a second way, and what is below. I mean, we would never, we, I would say, what is above and beyond your comprehension? What is above and beyond this world? In English, it doesn't make sense to say, what is below this world? What is below and under this world? You get, you know, then you start thinking, I don't know, Greek mythology, what's underneath, and hellfires, and no, not like that, right? But in Arabic, below and under the world is the same thing as above and beyond the world. Right? So you can say what is folk of Sirdatul Muntaha and what is Tahtu the Thara, everything falls under the dominion and control of Allah Subhanahu the physical creation, non physical creation, every aspect of the world, every uh, every dimension, every plane of existence. Alright. Then in Bilkol, okay, if you were to speak aloud you don't need to even Allah SWT knows what you keep secret and Allah Taala knows that what is even the most hidden right and this is again something that is used in the, by the Mashaikh that there, you have a sir Akfa refers to that which is most khafi so this is ism tafdeel ism tafdeel has the regular thing in the zimin of it if there is an akfa there is a khafi so you have sir, khafi, and akhfa. Means Allah Ta'ala knows you don't have to declare it. Declaring it out loud is not something that's going to make Allah Ta'ala know. What is this? This is coming at you because Sayyidina Rasulullah also used to exert himself sometimes when he used to recite the Quran very out loud. And here Allah Ta'ala was giving a ruksa to the Prophet that no, you can recite it silently or even inaudibly. That will be sufficient. But now this is a broader thing. That what does it mean? It means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows, right, what is in the hearts and what you keep hidden. And you can see here the verb here. Uh, Allahu la... Okay, now I come to that in a moment. So Allah ta'ala knows what is hidden and He knows the surah ya'lamu. Ya'lamu as opposed to yasmau. Yasmau is for qawl. Allah ta'ala would hear if you pronounce something. The verb being used here is a ya'na, Allah Ta'ala knows. 
So something that is unpronounced. That which is pronounced is heard and that which is unpronounced is known. Now what are those things that are unpronounced? So here this ayah is showing that in a human being you have levels of unpronounced. So for example when you speak, when you call, when you pronounce you have levels. You may speak softly, louder, even louder. There are levels of pronouncing. Just like that in what is unpronounced there are levels so sir, khafi, and akhfa, three levels of what is unpronounced. What does that mean? So sir is sometimes translated as secret, khafi is hidden, akhfa is hidden most. So for example, you may not pronounce to somebody that you love the world, that you have greed for the dunya. It is something that is part of you, but it is unpronounced, it is unspoken, so that may lie in your sir. You may harbor a secret love for the world, or you may have envy for someone, but that is unpronounced, you don't say it, but you keep it hidden you, it lies in your khafi. It's a hidden envy that you have for someone. Or you may be arrogant. And again, you may not, I mean people do, but perhaps a person has arrogance that is unpronounced. They don't say it, they don't declare it. So what they keep that in their hiddenmost self, that is akhfa. Right? So this is another branch of ilm of deen to try to understand and how to uproot all of these hidden ailments of the heart that are inner batin to take out our secret greed, our hidden envy, our hidden most last drop of arrogance and pride. Right? So this is, but, and what you, what you know from here is, why do you have to do that? Because, فَإِنَّهُ يَعْنُمُ Because Allah Ta'ala knows. He knows the envy you feel, even if you don't say or do anything. He knows the arrogance you feel, even if you don't say or do anything about it. That's why all you remember the Sahih that Allah Prophet said, that a person was even مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةً even mithqala dharra, even person who has the atom's weight, one drop of pride won't be able to go into Jannah. So where is that one drop? Where is that dharra? It's in your button. It's not something, if you pronounce it, you act arrogant, you've gone way beyond dharra. You have a lot of kibber. What is that last drop? What is that one drop? That's inside. That's what nobody else knows. Allah knows. فَإِنَّهُ يَعْنَمُ Allah Ta'ala knows. So that is why in this Quranic science of Tazkiyah, a person has to purify their sir, khafi, akfa. I don't want to have any secret sin, hidden sin, hidden most sinful emotions. Alright? Allahu la ilaha illahu. Oh, you know the transgression of that. Lahul asma'ul husna. To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belong the most infinitely beautiful names. Alright? Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not... Uh, there's no command here to make du'a using those names, but that has come earlier. We did it in Surah Araf, Surah 7, verse 179, and it came also in Surah 17, and that is, لِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَى husna فَدْعُوهُ biha that to Allah Ta'ala belong the beautiful names, you should make du'a to Him. But here, what is the rabd? Allah Ta'ala is saying that, oh human being, just like you have a sir, and a khafi, and a akhfa, you have a batin, you have things that are unpronounced, you have realities, feelings. Allah Ta'ala knows them. Just like that, Allah Ta'ala also has attributes. And the way Allah Ta'ala pronounces and reveals those attributes to you is those asmal husna. So the names, the beautiful names, are representatives, are markers for the attributes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. But the reality of those attributes, Allah Ta'ala alone knows. The asma, the names are just isharat, are just indications as to what they are. Alright? Okay. Now from verse 9 all the way up to verse uh, 98. From 9 to 98, 
the whole story is going to be, which means 90 verses, is going to be the story of Sayyidina Musa in detail and in fairly speaking sequence. A lot of it did come up in Surah Baqarah and we did it in detail there. So we will go over that a bit quicker, but to whatever extent there is something new that comes up, uh, we will add in, in some comments about that. So let's just read this maybe very quickly uh, and I'll just read it for you in English. So, has there not come the story of Sayyidina Musa to you when he saw a fire and said to his wife, wait, I perceive a fire. Wait here, I have perceived and seen a fire. Perhaps I may be able to bring you some ember or some fire from that or I may find some guidance by the fire. When he came to the fire, it, he was called, he was addressed, Ya Musa, that O Musa salam, Inni ana rabbuka, that indeed I am your Rabb. Fakla na'alaik, that you should take off your two shoes. Innaka bilwadil muqaddasi tawa, that you are indeed now in the pure, sanctified, sacred valley of this place called Tuba. Alright, so Sayyidina Muslim is told to take his shoes off. Then Allah Ta'ala says to, the, uh, to Sayyidina Musa Wa that I have selected and chosen you. Fastame. So you should intently listen lima yuha to that which I will now reveal to you. Innani anallah that indeed I, I am Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala La ilaha illa ana That indeed there is no deity, no God, no being worthy of worship except for me Fa'budni Therefore you, you should worship me and me alone Wa'akimis salata And you should establish the salah, the dhikri So that you may be able to remember me for the purpose of my remembrance Inna sa'ata Indeed the hour, the end of time, the day of judgment, yawm al-qiyamah Atiyatun, it is coming. It is coming. Alright? Akadu ukhfiha litudza kullu nafsin bima tasa. But Allah Ta'ala says that I, Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, am going to conceal the time and when that time will come. Why? So that every single self will be able to get the jaza for their sa'i will get the reward or recompense or be compensated for their efforts on earth. Therefore, the person who does not believe in that day of judgment and who follows his own, right, wataba hawa, who follows his own whims and passions, then they should never stop you from, they should never make you neglectful from it, otherwise they will cause you to be destroyed. Then Allah Ta'ala, after explaining all this, right? Now imagine a Musa Yisana, put your, I just pause a little bit. Now put yourself in the mind of Musa Islam briefly. He does not know at this time he's a prophet. He does not know that there's a God. He does not know Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala exists. He doesn't know anything. He is simply going to the fire thinking maybe I can figure out some way to bring a flashlight back. <laughs> Or maybe I will be able to get some guidance and look around and see where we are or learn something in light of the illumination of the fire. That's why he goes to the fire. Allah Akbar. And when he's there, Allah SWT is talking to him. That, oh Musa, it's me. <laughs> Allah Akbar. It's Musa. It's me, Musa. You're drunk. Right? Those of you who were in Chakwa last year, 
You may remember the Mulana who gave this in a very khas andaz. He explained this passage to you. Okay. Then he asked him that, and what? Uh, <laughs> and what is in your right hand? And what is in your right hand, O Musa? Right? Now, I mean, Sayyidina Musa should be at a loss for words. He should be completely flabbergasted. He should be completely floored that not only is there an Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking to me. I've taken my shoes off. I'm in the valley. Something's going to be revealed to me. There's an end of time, but that the end of time is secret. Right? But now, partly because this was a way to snap Sayyidina Musa out of it, asking a very simple, mundane question. Right? Like when people are saying to come, what's your name? Right? People calm people down that way. They make them repeat basic, simple realities that they know. And Sayyidina Musa salam, another reason is they say because he was Kalimullah, he was loved to talk to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is that famous passage where then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked, so what did Musa's Rabbah call? Sayyidina Musa responded, he, uh, he asaya, that this is my asa, this is my staff. Now, the answer is done. What is that in your hand, in your right hand? This is my staff. Now Allah subhanahu wa what do you do with it? But Sayyidina Musa starts talking, right? He takes an opportunity, it's my turn to speak. So, atawakku alayha, that I lean on it. Wa ahushu biha ala ghanami, and I use it to take down leaves from the trees so my sheep and goats can graze upon it. And then he couldn't think what else to say, right? So then he said, فِيهَا مَعَارِبُ أُخْرَىٰ And there are a lot of other things I do with it. I just can't articulate it right now because I'm not in my senses because you're Allah SWT and you're talking to me. Right? That's what he's saying. So a lot of other things I use it for. So now Allah SWT actually, now this was, a test is coming. He said, okay. Allah SWT, what does Allah SWT say? Call Allah SWT says, Al-Kiha ya Musa, that I want you to toss it down. Throw it down on the ground. فَأَلْقَاهَا So Sayyidina Musa threw it down. The second he threw it down, it left his hand. فَإِذَا هِيَ حَيَّةٌ تَسْعَى It became a slithering snake. It became a slithering snake. Running around, slithering snake. Then Allah Ta'ala said to Sayyidina Musa, Allah Ta'ala said to Sayyidina Musa, خُذْهَا Pick it up and grab it. وَلَا تَخَفْ And don't be scared. سَنُعِيدُهَا سِيرَتَهَا الْأُولَى I will restore it, Allah says, I will restore it to its original state. Alright. And this is uh, what happened, say, I mean, this, this doesn't, Allah doesn't mention this, but Sayyidina Muslim did that. He picked it up and then he saw that the staff was restored to its original state. So here was, a, this is going to be a sign that Musa Islam is going to use later in his da'wah, but actually this was first and foremost initially a sign of Allah Ta'ala's power to Musa Islam. This was a glimpse of the power of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. And this was a training of Tawakkul. This was the training that Sayyidina Muslim being trained that you have to trust Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. You are now becoming a Nabi and you're going to do whatever Allah Subhanahu tells you to do and he's going to ask you sometimes to do things that are khilafi akal, khilafi ada. And you have to have tawakkul on Allah SWT and trust in Him that to do what Allah Ta'ala wants you to do is what you have to do. All of that just took place in this one thing. Alright? Then, to also show that okay, not every single sign is going to involve such a test or a scary slithering snake, so Allah SWT gave Sayyidina Musa a 
Another sign, that you should uh, press your hand under your side, under your arm. Can mean arm, but it, to be in the, it could be anywhere in your side, right? And then when you do that, it will emerge shining. It will emerge shining without any defects. And then Allah Ta'ala said that this is what, this is eyes and ukhra, this is yet another sign. لِنُرِيَكَ min آيَاتِنَ kubra, So that we may show you a glimpse, a sign, a sample of our ayatin al-kubra, of our immense and tremendous signs. Alright. So this is all happening very fast for Satan, we'll say, Salaam. Then next, another bomb drops. <laughs> right? Now all of this isn't just to make you happy and make you a prophet. No, this is a responsibility. Becoming bestowed, being bestowed with nabuat and the signs is a responsibility. And you know that person you're fleeing from, you're going to have to go right back to him. <laughs> you have to go right back to him. Idhab ila fir'awna innahu tagha. That you have to go to Fir'aun, for indeed he is rebellious. Alright. So up to here then, this incident is when Sayyidina Musa Islam, if you remember, all of you remember the story, he grew up in Misr. He was from the Bani Israel, right? And Fir'aun was the leader of Misr. And what today also even the Christian community calls themselves Coptic. This was actually an ethnic community, the Kiptiya or the Coptics in English. And he was a Copt. And there was a... Uh, put it this way, the Bani, you remember the Sayyidina Yusuf and the Islam was in Misr. Right, so Sayyidina Yusuf settles in Misr. So a line from Sayyidina Yusuf and the Islam, Bani Israel, is staying in Misr. Right? But then tides turn in new community, which is this Coptic community takes over Egypt. Then as all of you would remember the story that once Sayyidina Musa happened to see two men who were in an argument. One was a Coptic and one was his own from Bani Israel. And he felt that the one in the Bani Israel was being wronged and the Coptic one was a bit more physically aggressive. So to break up by putting an end to the fight, he delivered one fist blow punch to the Copt, but that actually ended the fight, but it also ended his life. And when he ended his life, because Masri was so strong, then Sayyidina realized, right, that okay, because the, I've killed one of the people from the community of the ruler, and for own is unjust, right? Uh, this is the same Musa, by the way, so the sequences, and if I go even earlier, this is the same babe Muslim who was born, not born, but ra- born in his mother's home, but then raised in the home of Fir'aun. So he knows Fir'aun very well, right? He has been raised in the palace. He knows what type of person Fir'aun is. So here, then Sayyidina Musa Islam was traveling. And when they traveled, Sayyidina Musa Islam, he noticed this fire. And this was burning in the direction, remember that direction of Mount Tur? So then he went to that fire. Here to send the rest, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in Quran al-Karim mentioned, are to this issue of shoes. So Sayyidina Abdullah bin Masood mentioned that the shoes of Sayyidina Musa Islam were actually impure at that time. And that's why they were, t- they were taken off so that the holy sand, uh, the pure sand of the valley of Tuwa may touch his feet. You would notice also generally that in our deen we also take our shoes off whether we're doing tawaf of Makkah Makaramah, we're praying Salah. Right? Okay. This fire, right, the commentators have said that actually this was not a fire. 
And in Hadith, in Sahih Muslim, Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned that this was actually the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that light, he actually saw a light. And he went towards that light, that would have been a better way to say it, a light which he thought to be fire, thinking that he would bring back some warmth and light from that fire, etc. But actually it was a nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And with Sayyidina Rasulullah it's a difficult thing to understand, but the Prophet said in this Hadith that the nur of Allah ta'ala is his veil. Is his veil. And that the brilliance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would singe and burn the eye if the brilliance of Allah was exposed, exposed to this world. Now, it doesn't mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again is physical and has some shroud of, ve- of light over him. But you would know that these are also two names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Huwa al Zahir, Huwa al Batin. He is al Zahir, he is al Batin. So, this nur that Sayyidina Musa saw was what in Arabic they call it the Jalli which is a manifestation or a shot, right, of Allah subhanahu wa nur. And that is something, right, that he was able to see from a distance and he was able to walk towards that, right. Okay, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, So again it shows the importance of salah. One of the very first things that Allah subhanahu wa tells Sayyidina Musa is that you have to establish salah. So this is a Nabi being bestowed nubuwa, but being told the importance of ibadah. And that's another way to think. Look, even the Anbiya had to pray. Sayyidina Rasulullah prayed. All these Anbiya were commanded to pray. So when the Prophets of Allah subhanahu wa prayed, because you have people sometimes say, they think, oh, well, I'm a good person, I don't need to pray, because I'm good. Can, even if you ask that person, do you think you're as good as a Nabi, as a Prophet, they would say, no, no, nobody would even, no honest person would ever be able to make such a ridiculous claim that they're as good as a Prophet. Well, all of the Anbiya were commanded to pray. So in terms of needing to pray, the Anbiya need to pray. So if the Anbiya need to pray, then us who are Ghair Anbiya, obviously we need to pray. So something just to point out that you see in all these places, you saw in Sayyidina Isa here's Sayyidina Musa and their inception of their Nabuwa, they mentioned that they've been commanded to pray Salah. So this is the incredible importance of Salah in our deen and in the entire realm of humanity. Right? And this is why also it comes in a date and on the Day of Judgment, our Salah will be the first thing that is asked. It was also the first thing commanded to the Prophets, by the Prophets, and it will be the first thing that we are asked about. Here you also have another mention when Sayyidina Musa Islam talks about the benefits of his staff that clearly he was also a shepherd. He was herding and grazing sheep and goat. This is also considered to be a sunnah of the Anbiya. And Sayyidina Rasulullah Sayyidina Isa Islam Sayyidina Musa Islam Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam and other Anbiya I cannot say necessarily all Anbiya but many of the major Anbiya so to do this with niyat of sunnah is also something uh, that a person can do. The asa itself, so Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam also made use of an asa, which was primarily used in Jummah Khutbah and sometimes used when the Prophet was walking. So this is also considered a sunnah of the Anbiya generally and a sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. So they're going to be basically uh, yeah, okay. Now let's move from verses 25 to 36 and continue the rest of this story. So Allah Ta'ala then ended and said what? That you have to go towards Fir'aun. So now 
when hearing that command, that Sayyidina Musa makes a du'a, tells him, call Sayyidina Musa this is the famous du'a, Rabbi Shrahni Sadri, wa yassirli amri, wahlul uqtadam min lisani, that, O oh Allah Sponta, I ask you to give me shara sadaq, I ask that you expand my breast, fill it with more of your nur, make, give me itminan, give me sakun, wa yassirli amri, and make this task of mine easy, can mean the immediate task of going to Fir'aun, can mean the overall task of, being a Nabi, you can see in some sense Allah Ta'ala did not grant this du'a because when you see in Surah Baqarah, he had a very tough time dealing with his, his own people, right? So the task of going to Fir'aun was made easy. Reaching there was easy. Confronting him was easy. Escaping him and then eventually him being drowned was easy, right? So that's why it's more probably being used in the immediate sense that make this task of mine, which you've told me to go to Fir'aun, make it easy. And untie the knot on my tongue. This is because when Sayyidina Musa was a baby, right? And you remember this, we did this for you earlier, right? Last year, that Fir'aun had received this prophecy that it would be a son, male child, from the Bani Israel who would grow up and would be the source of, the means of overthrowing him. So he ordered the slaughter of all of the male babies. But even But when he found this male baby floating on the water and his wife... Asiya, she wanted to keep him and then he kept him. But at one point he became a little bit suspicious of the child, right? And when he became suspicious of the child, he decided to test the intelligence of baby Musa by bringing some jewels and hot coals and saying, which one would he put on the tongue? And then the angel came and guided baby Musa's hand towards the coal so that Fir'aun would not suspect anything. But when he put the call on his tongue, he received a wound, he burnt his tongue. So because of that, Sayyidina Musa some spoke with what today we would call a slight lisp. A slight lisp, right? This is all, and this is why earlier he had made that dua for Harun al-Islam, his afsa who is more eloquent in speech. This was because he had, Sayyidina Musa had this lisp. So it also shows, right, that anybody who has any handicap, physical handicap in this world, you know, although obviously a lisp is not a major physical handicap, but it qualifies as a handicap, that the handicap, can, a physical handicap does not handicap or impair your spiritual abilities. When somebody has a physical handicap, even they can be chosen to become the Nabi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like Allah ta'ala chose Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam. But here Sayyidina Musa salam was worried that I need so to untie the knot on my tongue. Why? So yafkahu koli, so that they will be able to understand my speech. That again he made this dua, which Ali waziram min ahli, that Allah appoint and designate and make for me, leave for me for my benefit, an assistant, a deputy min ahli from my family, Haruna Akhi, my brother Harun, right? Ashadud bi he azri that may and strengthen me by means of him, washrikhu wa ashrikhu fi amri, and make him a partner in my task, right? So that him and me now, it's the plural, Nusabbihaka, me and my brother Harun al-Islam, the two of us will do a lot of tasbih of you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright. We will do a lot of tasbih and manadhkuraka kathira and we will do a lot of zikr. Innaka kunta bina basira and indeed you will be ever watching over us. Qal Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded, that indeed, Ya Musa, we have granted your prayer, granted your request, and we will do all of these things. 
right? All of those things for what? Again, we will um, give you Shara Sadr. We will make it easier for you to read for on and come out. We will remove that knot on your tongue and we will make them understand your speech. Or some say that it applies just to the most recent one that only that we will make say make Harun Islam your brother, we will also make him a Nabi. Alright. Verses 37 to 40. Then Sayyidina Musa, uh, Allah Taala talking to Sayyidina Musa Islam. وَلَكَدْ مَنَّنَّا عَلَيْكَ مَرْجَةً أُخْرَى And indeed we showered our immense favor and grace upon you yet another time. When, when we إِذْهَوْ هَيْنَا إِلَىٰ أُمِّكَ مَا يُوهَا When we sent wahi, literally it means when we inspired your mother with what she was inspired. Okay, now this is going in the past. Second, and that's why I said another time, not a second time. It was an earlier time. What does this mean? This is a very important eye in Quran. First of all, remember what I was telling you about words have lingual meaning and terminological meaning. So the word wahi means for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to communicate with a human being from the unseen. That's its logui mana. Istilahi mana, normally the word wahi is used for scriptural revelation bestowed by Allah ta'ala to a nabi. Here the word is not being used in that sense because as all of you know, the mother of Musa was not a nabi. Alright. Second point, which is the most important thing, is this verse in Quran establishes that Allah Ta'ala can and does communicate with ghair anbiya. This is what is called ilham. This is what is called ilqa. This is what is called kashf. And here Allah Ta'ala is even calling it wahi. So some people who don't understand, right? And most average Muslims think like that, that no, Allah Ta'ala only communicates to prophets, right? And they insist on that as a die-hard tenet of Islam. And if they hear that anybody has received ilham or ilqa, inspiration from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm using the word ilham because it means non-script revelation. And even after Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam. No one will get wahi, nobody will get scriptural revelation, a book, but Allah Ta'ala can still communicate with people. One way is, for example, dreams. Sayyidina Rasulullah himself said in hadith that when I pass away, all of the aspects of nubuat will be lifted, but one aspect, even though nubuat itself is the one aspect that will remain is dreams. What does it mean that Allah Subhanahu wa will still communicate with people through dreams? Another example is Salat al-Istikhara. So the Prophet taught us to pray the Salah, which is a sunnah, and what are you asking in that? You're asking Allah Ta'ala to inspire you, your heart, with what decision is better for you. And you're not a Nabi, you're a Ghair Nabi. So Ghair Nabi is asking Allah Ta'ala to send inspiration. And this is the same thing that's happening here. The mother Musa is a Ghair Nabi and she's being inspired. So this ayah establishes that non-anbiya can get direct inspiration from Allah Ta'ala. However, that inspiration is tabi to Qur'an, Sunnah and Sharia. Nobody can say I got ilham to do something that goes against Qur'an or that goes against the Sunnah or that goes against the Sharia. That can never happen. Right? But if it's something that falls within the realms of Sharia, that is fine. And that is why even in the fields of Islamic learning, people have gotten such inspiration. 
For example, a mufassir may get inspired to write a particular nukta or commentary on Quran. A muhaddith might also use some feeling of inspiration to decide a grading of hadith. Right? And the fuqaha many times said that Allah Ta'ala would inspire them with the barakah of Allah Ta'ala's inspiration and hidayah that they reached that point of ijtihad, that they were able to do that ijtihad. And same thing in the mashayikh of the sobos, they may get an ilham from Allah Ta'ala about a particular method of zikr. But as long as that method of zikr, that point of ijtihad, that concept in tafsir, that process in hadith, have to fall within Sharia. There's nothing in it that goes against Sharia. This is the criteria for everything in our deen. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's men. And what was that? So Allah subhanahu wa <coughs> inspired her with what? That to put Sayyidina Musa Islam in a box. And then to cast that box into the river. And then he told her. That look. And that river will wash him up to the banks of the river. And. Yaquluhu. <coughs> That who will pick him up from the bank of the river? Somebody who is my enemy, his enemy. Up now, the mother first she got the salli, that okay, the first she got a shock, put your baby in a box and set him on the river. Then she got the salli, no, no, the baby will live, the box will be washed up and your baby will come. Then again she got a shock, but the person who's going to find him is going to be my diehard enemy, Allah's enemy, the enemy of Allah, and will be his enemy, the enemy of Sayyidina Musa salam. Then what did Allah Ta'ala say? وَأَلْقَيْتُ عَلَيْكَ مَحَمْبَةً minni, And I have sent down on you, Sayyidina Musa salam, love for myself. Allahu Akbar Kabeera. Ajeeb? Hmm? And that you will be raised under my gaze, means under my supervision. Right? You will be raised under, literally it's my gaze, but you will be raised under my supervision. Alright. So this is the real blessing, right? I mean, much more than this first inam or the second inam of the mother. The greatest thing that anybody could ever hear, right, is this that Allah Ta'ala tell them, وَأَلْقَيْتُ عَلَيْكَ مَحَمَّةً مِّنِّي Right? Like, one can not even imagine how happy Sayyidina Musa salam would have been to hear this. And this shows you also the incredible beloved nature of the Anbiya. So when a person is a denier of the Anbiya, mocks the Anbiya, they're denying and mocking the beloveds of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then, Allah subhanahu wa continues narrating to Musa salam that when your sister came walking فَتَقُولُوا هَلْ أَدُلُّكُمْ عَلَى مَنْ Okay, this, that, that should, can, this was the incident, what, this is the incident when Musa salam is in the palace and he is not drinking the milk of anyone, right? No, not Asir Radanha, nor any other woman who they invite, nor any of the professional wet nurses that the king Fir'aun called he wasn't drinking the milk of anyone. And so the sister who is also working, let's say, as a maid, Khadima, in the palace, she happened to see this whole thing and she recognized that baby Musa Islam, her brother. So she told them that, okay, I can tell you of a wet nurse who is so good because she was a mother, obviously he will take his own mother's milk. So then the sister arrived, said that, should I not, said to the people in the royal court and the administration that I can guide you to somebody who will care for him. 
and then they said, okay, fine, bring her. So then she went and she brought the mother Musa alayhi salam. And yes, Bibi Musa did drink the milk from her. And then after the mother spent some time there, then she said, you know, I can't even live in this palace. I want to go home. She says, okay, can you take this baby with you so you can wet nurse him there? She said, yes. And then end of that phase of the story is that Bibi Musa goes back with his mother into his own home. And that then Allah SWT is referring to here, وَرَجَعْنَاكَ إِلَىٰ أُمِّكَ then we returned you to your mother. So literally her eyes may be cold, means that she should be content and pleased and happy. And that she wouldn't, so she would no longer grieve and sorrow at her separation from you. But then we tried you, Sayyidina Musa with a number of trials. And then you stayed several years with the people of Madian. And then Musa you have then arrived to an appointed Time. Okay. What does this mean? This trial was when he killed, this was a test for someone, when he ended up inadvertently, involuntarily killing that person. Then Sayyidina Musa Sam from then on faced a number of trials. Alright. Then moved from 41 onward. Then another. Second, maybe most beautiful line that Musa Islam hears after the ayat of love is ayat 41. Was okay, yeah. Was tanatuka linafsi that I've chosen you and selected you for myself. Right? Now, this is something more than just nabuwat. This, this has a much deeper meaning. Right? When somebody says, um, yes, that you're going to be a Nabi. But what is Allah SWT saying to Sayyidina Musa Islam that I have selected you for myself? So this is the second incredible sentence that Sayyidina Musa gets to hear directly from Allah SWT. That go you and your brother Gani Harun with my signs. And none of the two of you should be lax and slack in my dhikr. So this is the ayah that is used also by the ulama and mashayikh that look how important dhikr is when you're doing da'wah that the anbiya, even though they're going on the basis of their nabuwa, they're having the ayat, the signs of Allah Ta'ala, Allah Ta'ala is saying you must have dhikr in your heart when you make da'wah to Fir'aun. So that means that for any of us who ever try to do da'wah, we must have a dhikr in our heart when we do that. Then Allah Ta'ala says, فَكُولَ لَهُ كَوْلًا لَيِّنَا and then the two of you, you should go speak to her own layin in soft, gentle words. This eye is used to show the mercy of Allah SWT. If your own is such a tyrant, he should be spoken to harshly. He should be reprimanded. He should be scolded. He should be punished for what he's doing. And at this point, he has already killed who knows how many thousands of baby boys, right? He's a mass murderer. He is a tyrant, dictator, and mass murderer. And Allah Ta'ala is sending his beloved, chosen Musa salam and his brother Harun and telling the two of them that the two of you should go and speak gently. Why? Because if you speak gently لَأَلَّهُ يَتَذَكَّرُوا أَوْ yaksha, that maybe he will be able to get that tadkara, get that nasiha or maybe he will fear. Now getting the nasiha you can understand because if you speak to someone gently Maybe his heart will open up. Maybe he'll listen to what you're saying, right? And then maybe he'll take the advice and admonishment. How would speaking to somebody gently, uh, 
make him fear, right? So the notion of fear is that it may make him fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what we told you, that I've mentioned to you sometimes before about the fear born of Allah's mercy. There's a fear like humility that is born of Allah's mercy. He'll be embarrassed that, look, I've been such an oppressor to this community and here they're speaking to me nicely and they're gently inviting me. I should fear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is still being so merciful to me. Right? So this is also, this ayah is used as an usul for us. It shows us how to give dawah, how to invite people, that you have to invite them softly, no matter what they say. Whether they listen or not, that's in the hands, that's in Allah Ta'ala's hidayah. Right? And in this case, Firon will not listen. Right? And there may be people like that today. But no matter what, we have to speak to them in gentle words. Because that's the only chance that they may heed the tazkara or they may learn how to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, so the two of them, Sayyidina Musa and Sayyidina Harun they said, they made dua to Allah Ta'ala, they addressed Allah Ta'ala, Rabbana, innana nakhafu, we are, forget him, we are afraid. <laughs> Indeed, we, we are afraid of what? That he will become defiant, he will be excessive against us, he may rebel against us, he may take some violent steps towards us. So then what did Allah Ta'ala call? Allah Subhanahu responds to the two of them, La ta'khafa, that the two of you, you should not be scared at all. Innani ma'akuma, that indeed me, Allah Subhanahu I will be with both of you every step of the way. Asma'u ara, and I am all and ever and most hearing and all and ever and most watching. Right? Okay. So this has also been taken by the ulama to mean that when a person does da'wah, they have the madad and nusrat and mayyat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with them. If their niyat is true, if their ikhlas is true, if they speak gently, then they will also get the mayyat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that activity. So go to him, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then trains, it tells Sayyidina Musa Sawan, what should they say? So, Fakula inna rasula rabbika. They tell him that we are two rasuls, two messengers of your rab, of your rab. Fa'arsil ma'ana bani Israela, and now you should send the bani Israel with us. Wala tu adibuhum, you should stop tormenting and punishing and torturing them, right? And we have come to you with a sure sign from your rab. Then then show him those signs that Allah SWT has given, both one of the staff and one of the glowing hand. And then tell him finally, Wasalamu ala manittaba al huda and salam will be given to that person who follows the hidayah. So if you follow the hidayah, you will also enter into salam, into peace and tranquility and sanctity. This eye has been used by some ulama that if you ever have to say the salam to a non-believer, this is how you would say, As-salamu ala man, al-huda. Right? And if you're in a situation where for some societal reason somebody says, As-salamu alaykum to you, and you know they're a non-Muslim, right? So how do you respond to one way you could also say, Was-salam, but in, and stop, don't say, Was-salamu alaykum. Because when you say wassalamu alaikum, then the same salam they tried to offer on you, you're offering on them, and that salam is reserved for Muslims. So you would just say wassalam, and your niyat would be this one, wassalamu ala manittabal huda. That salam befits and is given to those who are followers and seeking to follow the hidayah. Right? Okay. 
Again, this is not the make it or break it issue of deen, right? The people love to ask this question that if a Christian student says salam to you, what am I supposed to say, right? But the ulama have given a way, right? Either this sentence or simply saying was salam with niyat of the sentence. So this is Surah Taha, Surah 20, verse number 47, where you can find the sentence. Then it has been revealed to us that punishment shall be for the... And the last thing you should say to Sayyidina Musa Islam and Sayyidina Harun, what you should say to Fir'aun, Allah Ta'ala is teaching, That indeed has been revealed to us, yani, tell him that has been revealed to us, Musa Islam and Islam, that indeed the torment and punishment of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will be for those who kathaba who falsify and deny these signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and spurn and turn away from these signs and refuse to accept it. Right? It comes also in Hadith in Sahih Bukhari that once Sayyidina Rasulullah sent a letter غلبان to Herakal a letter to one of the Roman emperors in which he addressed him this way As-salamu ala man huda and this is how the Prophet then would address uh, people who had not yet <coughs> adopted and accepted Iman. So you can say it is Sunnah then to address or greet a person in such a way. So then it's understood here that Sayyidina Musa and Sayyidina Harasim went. And they went with their tasbih, with their zikr, while remembering Allah Subhanahu with the signs of Allah Ta'ala. They met Fir'aun and they said all of these things to Fir'aun and then all, it means in Fir'aun said, فَمَنْ رَبُّكُمَا يَا مُوسَى Who is the Rabb of the two of you, O Musa? Who is this Rabb? Right? Now interestingly, remember what was Musa Islam told to say? He was told to tell him, Rabbuka, your Rabb. And he twisted the term, no, who is your Rabb? He didn't say who is our Rabb or who is my Rabb. He's still not accepting it. فَقَالَ سُسَيْنَ مُوسَى Responded, رَبُّنَا, our Rabb. He didn't say Rabbi. Didn't say my Rabb. But if Rabbana could mean our including Fir'aun or maybe just our means just uh, the two because there's no dual we in the Arabic. So Rabbana ladhi a'ta kulla shay'in khalkahu thumma hada that our Rabb is that being who has given everything its creation and he created everything and then guided it. Right? And this is also an often recited not often recited, but a very important verse of Quran. Just that part, Rabbana ladhi a'ta kulli shayin khalkuhu thumma hada. That Allah tells us that being who has created everything, then guided it. What does this mean? This is what in today you call instinct. Allah Ta'ala gives everything its creation, and then He gives it its fitrah, its instinct, its inherent instinct. That's why they say that when the chick is hatched from the egg, it knows how to eat from the grain. When a mammal is born from its mother, it knows to go and nurse itself and drink the milk of its mother. Nobody tells it that. When the fish is born in the water, it knows how to swim. So Allah subhanahu is that being who has created everything and given it its inherent guidance. And for the human beings, Allah Ta'ala gave that other hidayah, which was books and messengers. So He created all of humanity and He sent the hidayah of books and messengers on all of humanity. So call, so then for own response then, فَمَا بَعْلُ الْقُرُونِ الْأُولَى So then what of the generations that have passed? What of the previous communities that have lived? قَالَ سَيْنَ مُوسَى سَنَدَ إِلْمُهَا إِنْدَ رَبِّي فِي كِتَابِ Their knowledge, the knowledge of all previous communities and generations is with my Rabb. Right? 
Here now he says, in the Rabbi as opposed to Rabbana, in the Rabbi is with my Rabb fi kitab, in a book. Now it doesn't mean that Allah Ta'ala doesn't know and he needs to take out the book and look up in the reference book. No, fi kitab means in a permanently unwavering, infallible, infallible knowledge. That's what this idiom is referring to here. Allah Ta'ala knows everything infallibly. Their record has been recorded in the knowledge of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala at an infallible way. Right. <clears throat> and my Rabb does not make any mistake ever, doesn't go astray, is not right. And my Rabb never forgets. Okay. Then he continues Allah Arda and my Rabb over own my Rabb Musa saying that over my Rabb is that one who made this earth Mahdan that made this earth a almost like a bedding for you was and that he made roads on this earth for you to traverse. And and he sent down water from the sky. Alright. And then he took out various species of plants and vegetation for you. Eat and graze your animals. There are certainly signs in the Sarantaja. Then here the address addressed to Fir'aun is switched. This is Iltifat. Now Allah Subhanahu is speaking in his own tense that we have extracted by means of the water of the earth, various means water from the sky, the rain, various species of plants for you, eat and graze your animals, there are certainly signs in this for the intelligent. So just even in this process of rain and things growing, and animals grazing on the things and eating the things that grow from the ground, even that is viewed as a sign for intelligence. So what does that mean? So Allah tells concept of akal is something different, Right? Akal, when Allah Ta'ala uses in Quran, refers to a person's innate, common understanding. You don't have to have degrees to be able to see this process that water comes from the sky and causes things to grow and then animals eat those things that grow. You don't need a lot of erudition, brilliance, education. So Akal in Quran is not referring to that. Akal does not refer to the knowledge we get in our universities. Akal is referring to our own innate, common sense, our sense of perception. So even that, even this is a sign. In that for those people who have that akal, that intelligence, that intellect, people of discernment, right? They are signs for them. We have created you from this earth, and we will return you to the earth, and then we will extract you from the earth yet again. All right. So this is the discussion between Sayyidina Musa Salam, Sayyidina Harun Salam. And Fir'aun. Okay. Then Allah SWT says, And indeed we showed Fir'aun all of our signs, yet he falsified and rejected them. Fir'aun then said to Musa that have you come to us to remove us, remove, means Fir'aun and the community from our land with your magic, O Musa. So what magic? Because Musa had already tossed the staff and shown the sign of the glowing hands. So then Fir'aun came up with an idea. Fir'aun came up with the idea that he will gather some magicians and there will be some type of contest of magic between what he thought to be the magic of Musa so in I-58, then Pharaoh said, we will certainly present this same kind of magic before you. So arrange an appointed time of meeting between us, 
then neither us nor you will violate and fix an open plane for this. So let's agree on a day and a stage and a place where we can have this competition, can have this showdown. So Sayyidina Musa said that, okay, your appointment will be on the day of festival and the people should be gathered at mid-morning. So Sayyidina Musa then set the day and set the time. So then Fir'aun went back and he put his plot together, he mustered his resources, he put everything in place and then he returned. Sayyidina Musa told him that, Woe be to you, do not invent lies against Allah SWT, for then Allah SWT would destroy you with the punishment. Whoever, is in, ever, whoever has ever invented lies against Allah SWT has always and certainly been lost. They disputed the issue between themselves and then they secretly convened. Alright. Now, they said that these are but two musicians, meaning Musa who want to remove you from your land with their magic and destroy your excellent kingdom in your excellent way. So you should assemble your group and your plans and present yourself in rows. Only the victors shall succeed today. All of this passage is referring to the preparation of the magicians to um, contest with Sayyidina Musa Islam. But this ayah, number 62, that they disputed between themselves and then they secretly convened, is that apparently in f- when they met, they already thought that perhaps Musa Islam would be a real Nabi. And so they decided amongst themselves that okay, if Musa Islam defeats them, then they will follow him. And if he turns out not to be a Nabi and he's just a magician, well we are better magicians and then we'll defeat him and then we'll keep following for own. That's what it means. Alright? Okay. Then, uh, when they heard Sayyidina Musa Islam saying, to Fir'aun that don't invent lies against Allah subhanahu ta'ala then the magicians got even more of an idea that no this person is not an ordinary magician but this person is actually a Nabi but still because of their fear of Fir'aun and they had to obey him they agreed to this contest now when this contest starts so qalu ya Musa imma an tulkiya wa imma an nakuna imma an nakuna awalaman alka that either you toss first or we will be the first to toss. So they gave him the choice. Allah Sayyidina Musa respond, Bal Alku, okay, no, I will throw first. So then, as you know the story, they threw, Sayyidina Musa some threw. So the ropes and staff suddenly seemed to appear like slithering snakes to him. Sayyidina Musa something, you guys throw. So they threw something and probably Pharaoh had told them this is the type of magic they have. He has. So they thought that their job was to outdo him. So they had some type of optical illusion where they threw some staff and ropes that seemed to appear like slithering snakes. So Musa alayhi salam says, فَأَوْجَسَ فِي نَفْسِهِ خِيفَةً مُوسَى So Sayyidina Musa some sense a bit of fear. قُلْنَا Sayyidina Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Musa, لَا تَخَفْ don't be scared at all. Innaka antal a'la. That no, you will be the upper handed. You will triumph. And then Allah Ta'ala told the Prophet, that toss down what is in your right hand, yani toss down your staff, and it will d- devour whatever they have constructed. And they have merely contrived the plot of a magician, and a magician will never succeed where he goes. This also will la yaflahu sahiru heithu atal that the magician will never succeed in whatever he attempts or tries to do. 
فَأَلْكِيَ السَّحْنَةُ سُجَّدًا So what happened? The magicians, they fell into sajda. And what did they say? When Musa tossed the staff, then his staff turned into a snake and devoured all of their things. They saw that, they knew the reality. This is not a magician, this is a Nabi. They realized it. Because they knew what magic was and what illusion was and they could tell this is no illusion. Right? This is the real thing. So they immediately went into sajda and they said, Kalu amanna bi rabbi Haruna wa Musa. That we also believe in the Rabb of Harun and the Rabb of Musa Alright. One point here to note very quickly is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran that a magician will never succeed wherever he goes. Wala never, never can a magician succeed. They will never have falah. Heithu ata. So this also shows that magic, even if somebody, because to engage in magic is haram, even if somebody does so, they will never be successful. That can mean, obviously, number one, they will never be successful in the akhirah, they will never have that falah. And it can also mean in this world, somehow or the other, it will backfire against them. Even if it may outwardly initially appear to be successful, that it will backfire against them in some way. When the magician said they believed in Qala, Fir'aun addressed the magicians, Ah, mantum, have you accepted Iman Lahu in Musa Islam? Before I give you permission to do so, this is indeed a tremendous thing that you have done. This is a tremendous thing you have done. And then he said that he must be, sorry, that Musa must be your elder magician. He must be the one who taught you magic. And that is why you are following him. So what did Fir'aun say to them? I'm going to sever your arms and your legs from opposite ends. And then I will Then I will I will crucify you. I will crucify you. I will nail you. Right? To the trunks of date palms. Then you will learn who is more severe in punishment. And he keeps comparing himself to Allah SWT. Who is more severe in punishment? Because remember they balked when Musa said that Allah will punish so Firon said that I will show you who is more severe in punishment, yani whether him or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and whose punishment is abka, whose punishment is more lasting. Actually, the jahannam is abka, is everlasting. Even what he's talking about as a worldly punishment is just going to last a short period of time. So Allah Akbar, now look at the level of iman of the magicians. Always amazed at this, right? They're being faced, not with just threats or taunts, with physical violence and then death by crucifixion. But they say, Kalu. All, each and every single one of the magicians said, To Fir'aun, Lan nu'thiraka ala ma ja'ana min al-bayyinat. We can never ever choose you or prefer you, Fir'aun, over that which has been manifest to us clearly, from clear signs on this day. And to the one, Walladhi fatarana, to that being Allah SWT who created us, so faqdi, do whatever you want, ma antakad. It means like an uzu karo jo kuch karna chata. Do whatever you want. Allah Akbar. This is the height of their iman. Do whatever you want to us. It makes no difference to us. We are going to stay. Inna ma taqdi hadihil hayat dunya And whatever you can do is only can be done in implementing your decision in this world. Inna amanna bi rabbina. Indeed, we have believed in our Rabb. So that He may forgive us khatayana, all of our sins and mistakes that we've been living this life of magic and living this life of sin. 
And then he may and that which you ma akrahtana that you forced us alayhi to do minasir from this magic, that you forced us to do this sin to try to toss our magic against the Nabi of the Zamana. That's the big thing they're thinking about. Wallahu khairun wa abka. Allah Ta'ala is best and Allah Ta'ala is eternal. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّهُ مَنْ يَأْتِ رَبَّهُ مُجْرِمًا That indeed that person who comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a person guilty of sin and disobedience, as a criminal, فَإِنَّ لَهُ جَهَنَّمْ So such a person will have jahannam. لَا يَمُوتُ فِيهَا وَلَا يَحْيَا And they will never live in there, nor they will, they will never die in there, nor will they live. What does it mean? They will never die in jahannam. لَا يَمُوتُ It will be never ending for them. وَلَا يَحْيَا means they will never have a normal life. They will always be punishing. So they will feel, it will be as if they're being put to death over and over again without dying. But because every second they're being put to death, so they're not really living. This is the description of the punishment of Jahannam. So the punishment is such that it's sufficient to put a person to death. And every second is like that. So you can't really call them living. But at the same time, they won't die. Even though punishment is strong in every second and drop of it is sufficient to put a person to death. So that's what it means. لا يموت فيها ولا يحيا. Okay, and then Allah Ta'ala says, and as, for, as far as that person, وَمَنْ يَأْتِهِ مُؤْمِنًا As far as that person who comes to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala as a mu'min, as a believer, قَدْ أَمِلَ الصَّالِحَاتِ And that person had done righteous and good deeds, فَأُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمُ الدَّرَجَاتُ الْأُولَىٰ That that person will have high and lofty ranks, and they will have guard, جَنَّاتِ أَدْنِنْ تَجْرِيمَتَاتِ الْأَنْحَارِ they will have gardens underneath which rivers flow. خالدين فيها. They will dwell therein forever. وذلك جزاء من تزكى. And this will be the reward and the recompense for those تزكى who purified themselves from all sin. And the first ishara here is obviously to the magicians that they did their tazkiyah. They purified themselves of all of those years of magic and sin and even this act of sin of opposing Musa Islam by taking iman in him and being steadfast in that iman and not giving in to the threats of uh, Fir'aun. And generally it means that anybody who does their tazkiyah, who purifies themselves properly and completely and does tawbah and leads a life of iman and a'mal, then Allah subhanahu will forgive them for what is gone and what is past and they also will end up in the eternal abode of Jannah. Wa akhirat da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.